Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back. Hello, everyone, and welcome along to the Cold Popcher podcast where you are tuning in for part two of every film that we watched in 2023 we being myself aj my best friend richard hello and my uh disney villain jeremy (laughs) (laughs) i've said this before but i've always liked to think of jeremy as the villain of the podcast Um, i'm surrounded by idiots (laughs) (laughs) which is not something i say without affection by any means so (laughs) Um, it is not something I say lightly. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to part one, uh, feel you free with to. Your life? We're basically just going through every movie that we saw in 2023 and maybe saying if we thought it was good, if we thought it was bad. We've yet to crown anything, I've noticed. We've mm. yet to say, this is my most disappointing or this is my favourite. But that is all about to change, boys, because we're about to talk about what I think is probably... My most disappointing film of 2023. Wow. Okay. So, uh, Barbie, you guys. Um, (laughs) No. no, uh, We're talking about Mission Impossible. Mission colon Impossible. Hyphen Dead Reckoning. Dash, yeah. Uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Which Which is now... They've now said... Like and they did this too late, and I was saying this since the titles got announced. They've said that part two is not going to be called Dead Reckoning Part Two now. Wow! Which pro- hopefully means they'll remove Part One from oh, thank the goodness. title retroactively. Imagine if they didn't. Imagine if this was stayed as Part One for years. This is probably going to be what happened. Um, it's Richard here in the edit booth. They, uh, they did change it, AJ. So there you go. But that's something I was. Ta- I was so angry that they were giving it a part one when it's already like a title that's full of qualifiers there's there's colons in this shit there's hyphens in this shit you don't need part one yeah also it's it's mission impossible which like they all just sort of roll on after another with an unspecified time in between yeah if if james bond can do christina royale and then quantum of solace directly following on from one another bloody mission impossible can do the same get over yourself yeah yeah, get mm. over yourself, Tom Cruise. Famously, he can't. Saviour of cinema. So, yeah, I mean, this film I I, I had no real qualms with. I, I thought it was more of the same of the Mission Impossible that I've come to know and love, the, the McHugh and Cruise collaboration that long may it continue and save cinema. Mm. I, I, if, listen, if... If this was part six, I don't think I would have as big an issue of it. But Mission Impossible Fallout is so fucking yeah, good. It's fucking amazing. That that going into to Dead Reckoning, the, I my expectations were set there, and I just thought this was 
fairly average, fairly middling, and at times I even thought it was pretty bad. Like I thought that, um, what are they? Uh, who is it? It's who's Hayley it? Atwell? Benji? Oh. And, no, no, Haley Atwell's great in it, but oh, well. Benji Ben. Yeah, Simon Pegg and is it Ving Rhames. Ving, Ving Rhames. They're, they shouldn't have been in this movie. I thought no. they contributed nothing to the film. They're just there for like really shoddily written exposition scenes um, that I thought were just, just really tanked the film. There's a bit where Simon Pegg's character, Benji, has to um, disarm a bomb in an airport and one of the questions he has to answer is like, what's the most important thing to you? And the answer is my friends. And I thought that was so fucking lame. (laughs) (laughs) Like these characters shouldn't talk about how they're friends with each other. Like the world is at stake. It's not fucking, it's not fucking how I met your mother. It's mission impossible. It's not friends. I should have said. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like it just it just felt needlessly saccharine for a franchise mm. that doesn't doesn't do that kind of it's thing. Quite Especially for the first set piece of the movie. Like you don't yeah. get them like expressing their love for one another in case the world's silly, gonna end in the first stuff. challenge that they face in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And also the main villain. The main villain is an AI, an artificial intelligence, mm. and it. I just thought it was again so stupid, so much less interesting. What Henry was it called Cavill, again? The something entity. It was called the the entity. Ooh, the entity. Fucking bullshit. It's so bad. <laughs> also, it's an interesting and, thing about how, like, at the start, they're like, "Oh, there's these keys, but we don't know what they unlock." But the opening of the film shows us. So, like, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's one of those interesting, like, you know, show showing the audience stuff that the characters don't know but because they don't figure out in, in the course of the entire film in part one they don't figure out the thing that we've been told in the opening scene yeah right and i i just thought an ai villain was very and specifically the way they did it the way that it actually started talking to them and like Ugh. imitating others voices and i hate to say it about a franchise i have a lot of respect for it felt very marvel like it felt very ultron wow. like it well, felt i it think felt it also sillier felt like a than return... the reality of the universe yeah it felt like a return to the mission impossible 2 kind of feel of mm. like this is mm. cheesy schlocky like early 2000s tv show that's been turned into like a trying to be prestige action movie that kind of thing rather than the kind of like holy crap this is real kind of um yeah, feeling yeah. of you know the christmas macquarie films that have been so far mm. yeah and look i think henry cavill and mission impossible fallout an impeccable villain and not 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 underrated not in the sense that no one praised him but like he's got to be one of the best villains of the last decade i think wow. when i think Whatever. about fallout i think about henry cavill not tom cruise and his moustache. And his and, arms. Oh, reloading and, his and arms. the bit, yeah, reloading his arms. And the bit where in the final battle between them, where he climbs up the mountain and his like perfect face has been scarred from the helicopter mm. fight. It's so good. It's and so then good. The fucking his Looney Tunes death, where like the hook <laughs> rips his face back. Oh, so fucking awesome. Such a great, like a great chess game of characters mm. i thought and it's just like none of that is even done in in dead reckoning and i was just i guess let me be clear let me be clear i gave this three stars out of five wow. right like it is it is good it's not the worst mission impossible film i'd probably put it maybe after before one and two i'd, I'd rank it higher than one and two but maybe it's a maybe even with three 
revealing my uh ranking there which i know is maybe not the most conventional one but <laughs> like i just i just think like it just it didn't do anything really for me and i was so put off by the dialogue at the start with um benji and and what's his name luther that that it just it didn't (laughs) it it set me off on a wrong course the whole movie because i was just thinking about how bad those characters were integrated into the into the film and also i'll say it the big set piece of this one tom cruise driving a motorbike off a cliff boring as hell boring and, and like if i hadn't actually seen the video of like you know the youtube video which they put everywhere of like oh my gosh look at him doing it and it's like yeah he really did that it's like yeah that's it's pretty it's a pretty amazing setup with that massive ramp on scaffolding mm. with the you know the wooden <laughs> and all this stuff but it's also like i don't know it showing you the behind the scenes clunkiness and like showing you him actually doing it on youtube means that when you see it in the movie and all the, like the ramp has been taken away by yeah. CGI and replaced by mountain mm. it just makes it feel like a sort of a less good version of the stunt you've already seen well, this is the thing totally. that it's like because because the ground in that scene is CGI it is like the the marketing went over the top telling you no he actually did this because otherwise it's not impressive whereas like the set compared to the set pieces like uh uh Rogue the Nation. halo jump the yeah there and when the he fucking goes halo the, jump Bur- Bursh, the Burj Khalifa yeah the when Burj he goes Khalifa, um, the the underwater for like oh, six minutes um yeah and he holds on the plane hold the plane yeah it's all um that that all yeah felt a lot more like yeah I, I'll even go as far as to say that those behind the scenes featurettes more impressive to me than the shot in the film mm. where he does it like like I I'm such a hater it's just it's annoying to I, I, you know, Mission Impossible, I think, is one of the most consistent franchises out there and a, and a rare example of a franchise that's, like, better in the back half than it is in the in the front mm. half. And to see people be like, it's the best one yet, or this oh, is, no. yes, cinema is so back. I'm like, this is a, this is such a clear step down. It's, it's Macquarie's... <laughs> it's 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 christopher mcquarrie's worst f- film in the series so far i think like yeah. yeah i don't know i mean the thing is i will say i bloody enjoyed it like i left the i left yeah. the cinema had a great time rebecca ferguson in this film so good she was amazing like every scene she was in fully commanded the scene i think it was Haley atwell who was yeah. the yeah the, she's she's yeah. great couldn't she's stand her br- i thought she's the worst or, part of the film she's really she was, are you yeah, being serious yeah wow she i i wasn't yeah like she felt very like interchangeable like you know rebecca right. ferguson i think having her in there like she had been brought in as kind of like the new mission impossible girl kind of mm. you know a few movies back or whatever and then she really has a presence and then Hayley Atwell could have been one of, you know, 15 different actresses. Um, and well, it's, I mean, it's just fine. Like how she keeps on screwing over Ethan. Then he's like, I got to keep. And I, I just, that whole storyline of the two of them, I just it infuriated me. <laughs> yes. And like just this, and the weird sexless, sexless way that Ethan um, Hunt kind of like gloms onto a new woman who is like his sexless girlfriend is just, mm. It's just weird, especially as he gets older, it becomes like it moves from kind of being this sort of like white knight kind of you know thing to like being this weird paternalistic thing where it's just like, I'm your daddy now. <laughs> Let's unpack this because 
Tom Cruise is one of these actors where, like, at some point in the last 15 years, they just stopped doing romantic subplots with him in his movies because people felt uncomfortable because, you know, (laughs) he's pretty weird with the women in his real life. So I guess people just didn't want to see him. And when he did have a romantic interest in a film, it was either, like, received kind of poorly, like, in The Mummy, or it's like he's married like in the previous mission impossible so it like makes him safe to be around cuz he's cuz he's married but if this movie was made 20 years ago tom cruise and hayley atwell would get it on they'd be the fucking the whole film. time they'd be fucking the whole time and i think it's so interesting because i think sexless is such a good word to describe modern tom cruise jeremy and what I think is really interesting is that there's this scene in this movie where they're handcuffed together and they get into a little yellow Mini oh, Cooper yes, to, to drive yes. around. And there is, no, I didn't see anyone else talk about this, but there is a kinkiness to this scene <laughs> that I could not stop thinking about it because if you were to just see a screenshot or not have the context of the scene, it looks like Hayley Atwell is giving him some some a little road action, a little road hand job. Yeah, and they're while like they're... crawling, and they're crawling all over each other in the car. Like they're moving around this tiny, tiny space. And yeah, it weirdly, should be a steamy scene, mm, but this it's is a Tom beat. Cruise, so it's not. A, this is a, a beat that was scene. taken from um, Pierce Brosnan's "World Is Not Enough." Um, sure, that, yeah. It, no, tomorrow never dies. Sorry, um, with um, um, won the Best Actress award last year. Um, Michelle, Michelle Yeoh. Yeo. Michelle Yeoh, yeah. yeah, she was. Was that Michelle Yeoh? Correct. Yeah, and um, you know, they're on, but it's a motorbike instead of a tiny car, and they, mm. you know, they they have to sort of, and she's kind of straddling him, and it's very much played like as oh, 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 it's, it's sexy. We can say it. It's okay to be sexy. <laughs> but I'm. So, this I'm is so what sorry. Tom Cruise. This is this is what Mission Impossible like. I'm not even sure I wanted it to be sexy. I'm just saying it evoked imagery of people getting handjobs mm. in cars. And <laughs> it was interesting to me that the movie itself kind of doesn't want you to think about it. But like, it, it was that's kind of what like it looks like. Psychically slapping you on the hand. Like, nope, stop, yeah. no, no, yeah. stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, great. You know, I have to say, great last scene. Like the the all the different train carriages. There was, I was literally like, there was a, a visceral level. kind of, action to it Hmm. um and it was great i really enjoyed it yeah so the big movie going day of the year barbenheimer uh this is this is what cinema is back baby uh greta gerwig's barbie christopher nolan's oppenheimer released on the same day uh let's talk about barbie first doesn't it feel quaint to be talking about this now uh, you know in january of 2024 yeah like barbenheimer we're finally revealing our thoughts on these films (laughs) that everyone's been talking about for six months uh barbie good time at the movies yeah, I um I like I really liked it. I think I gave it four and a half stars. I think um I I have a couple of issues with the like the so we we talked about this on Patreon and my thoughts in a nutshell are like ideologically great cool message uh a, a lot of, i've heard a lot of like my feminist friends be like it's a very basic feminist message mm. but that's fine it's a mainstream film what do yeah. you what more do you want right like um so ideologically i think it's great uh plot machinations i'm a little bit weird on i think it's <laughs> i think the fact that barbie becomes a human at the end is like something i feel she didn't desire throughout the film well, at yeah, least the, from the, it, it becomes ken's film in the third act and then like bar 
main Barbie, Margot Robbie's Barbie, is like sidelined for the third act. And then it's literally like, oh, we have to think of a character arc so we can wrap it up here. Yeah. Um, My favorite thing about the film and the thing that has stuck with me so much since watching it is I am just so impressed and enamored and I love the idea of explaining um the like pitfalls and inequality of our real world patriarchy or patriarchal society by going let's flip it and see what that looks like i think that's such Mm. an accessible way to teach what inequality looks like and it's so funny that like obviously the men's rights activists were up in arms over this film for for being so woke and stuff but it's like it's kind of like talking to you like it's It's kind of it's pro man i think it's pro it's a pro men it's an empowering for men film and 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 a feminist empowerment film that is like truly about like a statement on how we should we need to achieve equality through equity Mm. so it's like it's like a way of showing that in such a i thought a very soft friendly way but these you know these people on the internet have made up their mind yeah it's it's, it's not like a a hard-hitting movie like some people are making it out to be but the the thing i because yeah, I got to see it like a day early and then at work, everyone's like, oh my God, what was Barbie like? You have to tell me. And my thing was that it's like, it is such a funny movie. Go in expecting a, a funny movie. If you get more than that, great. But like my thing coming out of Barbie is that I felt a little bit like empty because I was like, I had hyped this movie up so much that I was like, this is just a really funny movie. It is not going to change your life. It is not going to make you a better person necessarily it is not going to fix all of your problems but the thing is i think i thought it would and so to just have (laughs) a really funny movie with this great message and like gorgeous visuals and like auteur driven blockbuster like all these things i've been clamoring for yeah awesome just didn't feel like enough at the time well (laughs) but i think that it's not just your expectations like that's what Greta Gerwig was talking to like she was saying like you know the whole marketing of this film was that it was you know this movie is you know Barbie it's more than just a Barbie movie it's you know really saying something it's it's here to you know make a statement and it's just like I feel like and I'm gonna steal from a YouTuber that I absolutely love called Makara Tours who in her review of it she basically pointed out and I completely agree with her that essentially there there are two there are two storylines or two points that this movie wants to make and it can kind of only really make one um, and it tries to make both of them. And she thinks that the first one that was come up with was essentially the one that's the through line of where it ends, which is Barbie becoming a real woman, aging and realizing that beauty is in every part of the human experience of mm. what being a woman is. You know, And mm. I think those moments are the ones that land and you sort of feel them when she's talking to the older woman at the bus stop, when she talks to the creator of Barbie and like all those moments where I, it's just I like- I feel the opposite. I think these were the parts that didn't didn't work for me. I agree with the message, but the execution. That these, yeah, and and this is my yeah. I'm going to make a point about the execution in a minute. But she was basically saying that feels like the original through line mm. of the film, the Draft message one. that the filmmaker wanted to make. And then essentially there was this other fun little thing about Ken 
that then took on a life of its own as they were making the film and realized how unbelievably hilarious Ryan Gosling was with mm-hmm. it all. And it felt that felt like almost like a snowball that just gathered its own momentum. And then half or more of the movie became about this war between the Kens and the Barbies and men and women and, you know, patriarchy, sexism, all that. So, and I would say that from the very beginning, it's very clear that this movie wanted to make a point about patriarchy and sexism and mm-hmm. the impact of Barbie on. Totally. You know, it's not feminist- even, this is in the t- text you know yeah in in the text so i'm not saying that that part of it was an add-on but i do think that that stuff because it was the more sort of on the surface fun stuff and it also played into what i think is the best part of the movie which you've already identified which is the just the whole production of it like the set and you know everything to do with the way the movie looks is just yeah untouchable like it's so beautiful it would be so easy for a lesser director to not think about that and for it to just be and also with you know because essentially you've literally got the world's biggest wardrobe and you know the world's Mm. biggest like you know architectural history in terms of all the barbie dream houses and all the cars and everything and you could literally just do a pastiche of it and it for it to look cheap and plastic and but somehow barbie land feels well realized and like a real place um it's just that when you try to make both of those points at the same time and also the weird thing about the the Ken storyline is that instead of making the point in the way that the Barbies actually try to solve the problem of all the Kens is that they then basically like, we're going to take back control and then they actually do go and take back control. And it should have it should have been they should have voted on a future together. It's right? it's like what what are you, yeah. are you saying? It's just the stupidest it's the stupidest thing ever because they identify the problem at the beginning of the movie and then they just go back to it. Like it's just it's bizarre. And then Will Ferrell and his whole storyline just felt like. And then I think Richard, you sort of talked about the mechanics of things, like how exactly what exactly is the the mix between Barbie and the real world and how is she both a Barbie and also a real person in our world and how does the maker of Barbie still exist in an office in the building? Like It's, it's like all these yeah. sort of fantastical, magical elements that sort of are both fantastical but also somehow mesh into the actual real world that we are living in and they just go, eh, we're just not going to figure out I, how that works. I liked that. Yeah, I like. So. There's a line where they're like, Oh, is Barbie Land like a parallel universe? And they're all sort of like, yeah, whatever. I thought that was great to to not have to waste time telling me if Barbie Land is a parallel universe or a pocket dimension or like I didn't need to know that. But I did think that the ghost of the of Ruth Handler was it just didn't have any context. Like, why is there a ghost here? And she yeah. shows up again at the end. I, I didn't like that bit. I, I will say the, the one thing that, and this is this, a lot of people have started talking about it now, but it's just like, it pissed me off so much when I saw the film is the line, the voiceover line where mm. Margot Robbie is, Barbie is crying and saying about how she doesn't feel beautiful anymore. And the Helen Mirren's voiceover says note to the filmmakers, Margot Robbie is the wrong person to cast to make this point. To me, that completely undermines the entire point of the film and especially yeah. that scene. A lot of people have said that it's like they're beating people to the joke. They're saying that like, sure. um, they said, I was watching it with my friend and they nudged me and said, uh, they shouldn't have cast. And then the voiceover came on. But it's like, the whole point is that like, you know, society puts these standards on people that even someone who looks like Margot Robbie, who you could think has it all, 
can still feel know, inadequate, and, and it's 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 so it's such a gross line that's so antithetical. But also, that's just film. it doesn't feel groundbreaking. Like this point has been made over and over and over again, and it's not like this is the first movie to actually come in and admit that there is actually more going on in people's lives than how they look. Mm. You know, it, it's like it's I it, in one sense I agree. It's very cool that the Barbie movie is saying this. You know, there's some really yeah, cool yeah. stuff that the Barbie movie gets to say. And because it's Barbie and it's this like this IP that has had a chokehold on kind mm. of a lot of what young girls grow up thinking about themselves and all this sort of stuff. And also, you know, blah, blah, blah. But also it's like a little too little too late, you know? You reckon? You reckon Mattel has done too much damage as something i think no, no, about no no, I, no 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 so i'm not i'm not talking about the you know it's too little you know you can't make up for the damage it's more just like it's not enough of a statement like if this movie came out in 1999 right. sure it would be groundbreaking but coming out in 2023 and saying that beauty is more than skin deep is like <laughs> okay I'm, but that's not the only message no i know i know film. but it's just yeah. I, I i just I, want to point out at this point that like you're listening to this podcast and you've got three guys who are being like Barbie wasn't perfect. And like, I think that, and this is interesting because I, because I appeared on one of our listeners, uh, Dan did a podcast watching Barbie every day for a week. And I was in the third or fourth episode and it was sort of like the, it's now time to, you know, look at some of the, maybe, maybe little nitpicks and stuff, but like all the amazing things about Barbie, I feel like, we kind of like take for granted or like they're like a Hmm. given that it's like all the obviously great things about barbie yeah of course i'm so glad this film exists that that we got this like the highest grossing film of the year is like a female director with like an unflinchingly female perspective and like this super like the the world design the production design that it's like so much care and so much love gone into it mm-hmm. and unfortunately it seems like hollywood's going to be like more films based on toys then but it's like people like this because it's it's a great idea and it's a auteur driven auteur driven and and it's genuinely funny as well so funny. that's the thing it's like so I loved the um the oh, I can't remember her actual name but like the screwed up Barbie and um being Kate played by um. Oh my gosh! It's so I mean, like it was all sort of you know trailed in the trailer, but mm. still, uh, I love that. Like, Good yeah. term, Jeremy. Did you um, make that up? Maybe I don't know. I like that when when People a plot can... point is spoiled in the trailer, it's been trailed. I like. <laughs> yeah, that I, I, I've that's been in my mind for several years now, and I think it may be the first <laughs> time I've ever said it out loud. But, um, <laughs> It was one of those things where I thought that the joke was all done and over with with what we saw in the trailer. Mm. But everything yeah. that Kate McKinnon... I mean, Kate McKinnon is such an amazing performer. So, like, mm. of course, everything she says is hilarious. But, yeah, the, the, I just loved how she kind of became, like, the ringleader of things that were going on back on in, um, in Barbie Land. Yeah. Um, what, what I think this movie reminds me of somewhat, and maybe this is coming from my film tutor background or whatever, but it reminds me a lot of... Um, when you're doing like 48 hours or you're making a a short film like in high school or, or university or whatever and it's 4am and you're in the edit booth, you've lost your marbles, you're getting pretty silly and you start like 
rewinding the footage so people are falling over and getting back up again falling mm-hmm. over again. and people like i've done that before and had someone had to like leave the room because they were in hysterical fits of laughter just because they were so tired right and the line you said before where it's like margot robbie's a bad example mm. to make this point that feels like a symptom of that it mm. feels like they're in the edit booth they've got the 4 a.m sillies They've got the 4am sillies. They're just throwing every single thing at the wall and letting it stick there because there was, wasn't there like a deleted scene that Greta Gerwig wrote? It was never filmed. Oh, it fart. was like a, a fart competition or yeah, something like a that. Fart like, opera. yeah, fart opera. And it's like all this stuff is just, it's like the, the, the idea of the movie is just like, it's Barbie, do whatever the fuck you want, throw everything at the wall. And I kind of respect that, but, but some of it feels unfocused. I'm so glad they got rid of the fart opera. (laughs) Also, I'm going to say it, lockdown fever. Like this was, this was made during lockdown, like the COVID Mm. lockdowns, right? Mm. And so, You've got Noah Baumbach and um and Greta Gerwig talking about what she's writing and like, mm. you know, talking about the production well, of it. He was also writing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're they're yeah, so they're writing it together and you can just tell. Like and, and so that's I think part of the the um the charm of it, where the charm comes from, because it's just so you can tell there's been focus really, really put on it. But I do think some of the craziness of like, oh imagine, yeah, the will be like, I can imagine probably mm. comes from that as well. Yeah, I also totally. it's a, a mentioning the pandemic as well that like not so much this movie but there's a lot of movies uh knock at the cabin is a, is a great example of one of like single location films that were born out of necessity i think saltburn i would say is another one where it's like you know you can have everyone just go to this fucking um mansion in the middle of nowhere and Ah, and true. bubble like that but we, we got a lot of them at the end of last year as well or the end of 2021 um 2022 sorry 2022. but um but yeah i think yeah here as well so obviously same day as barbie we have the other half of barbenheimer which is christopher nolan's oppenheimer and it, it's interesting because like i when i when i finished when i'd finished both films i saw barbie a, a, a day earlier and then i saw oppenheimer i i put them both on sort of equal footing but for like different reasons and but like Oppenheimer I feel like has changed my life like I've thought about Oppenheimer every single day since I saw it and like it's your new Roman Empire it's well I mean I never thought about the Roman Empire (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah like especially the ending of that film is just like ah it blew me away and just like it's a film even in the days after i saw it and now having you know six months later just that like the more time i've had with it the more i appreciate it the more i i like about it yeah yeah um i certainly think about the final scene Mm. but that's that's probably about it i i liked the movie fine i thought that the um the splitting it into two halves i'm kind of like now one of these halves is a lot more compelling to me than than the other. <laughs> I think um, I, I would say it's split it very clearly into like three rather than two. Or, oh, or do true. you mean like the black and white versus the, the color? black and white stuff? Oh, yeah, I found yeah, so. the the in color stuff to be more interesting mm. than the the black and white stuff. Um, but I think it, like yeah, it, I, it, in terms of acts, it's like pre, the first hour is like before the town is built. The second hour is like the town, and then the bomb drops almost exactly at the two-hour mark, and then it's all the aftermath for an hour. And I, I quite liked how it was 
divided like that. Yeah. Look, I I think it, I had a good time with it, but I also think that like it it hasn't it hasn't it, the only reason it's stuck with me is because it's probably going to win best picture, so people are still talking about it and Yeah. And it's I I think my journey with it has been that I've become okay with it winning best picture if it's going to. Nice. Jeremy, what do you think? Um yeah, I it was interesting because as it started, I was like, oh gosh, this is going to be a long movie. And it's not actually, when I think about it, because I was just sort of, you know, going into it with the Oppenheimer of it all, you know, the, mm. you know, oh, Christopher Nolan. And then I was and then I was like, I've, I've locked myself in for three hours of a movie about this guy who basically is going to do something we all know he did and we all kind of know what happened. So like, how is this going to be enjoyable? <laughs> Um, and and it was it was really mm. enjoyable and it was gripping and like i i'm always amazed when a film has a sort of a culminating moment that everyone knows what that culminating moment is there's no mm. surprise and it's a mark of a really good filmmaker when they can still make that suspenseful and they can get you invested and they and i think the the payoff moment was beautiful um, and I think the sound design of this film just is unbelievable. Like the sound design, mm. unlike almost any other film that I've um, I've experienced, I just was in awe of how well chosen every single moment was. Like, I mean, yeah, uh, I, certainly. I mean, if I was to if I was asked to watch any Chris Nolan movie again right now. Mm. Oppenheimer would be like probably fourth on the list, third yeah. or fourth. I've been desperate for an prob- Oppenheimer rewatch, but when have I got another a spare three hours? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I do, I think in terms of film craft, far and away, this movie is unbelievable. It's just, it's glorious because essentially being able to create an action movie and, a, and a, like the feeling and the suspense mm. and the tension of a very tightly wound action film basically using Killian Murphy's face um, mm. and what's going on inside of his head without telling us what's going on inside of his head. I mean, it's incredible. And so yeah. the, subtle, the, the subtlety of what's going on, but yet how clearly it is known what's going on is, yeah, I'm not really expressing myself very well, but it was... <laughs> it's been a long a, a very, Yeah. Um, what well, The thing about Oppenheimer as well, like... Um, it did something that I've never seen a film do before, which is like, obviously, you know, a lot was made about shooting an IMAX and stuff. And like, you know, normally you watch a movie that's shot for IMAX. And if you watch it actually like in an IMAX cinema, the aspect ratio changes every now and then. And I remember watching Nope and it would be like this big scene and you think it's finished, but the aspect ratio is still IMAX. So you're like, well, something's going to happen or like a seemingly <laughs> innocuous shot would start, but it was an IMAX. So you're like, okay, something's going to happen. But like Oppenheimer d- used IMAX not to like accentuate the scale. I mean, like obviously it did, but um, not just to accentuate scale or like uh, action or anything like that. There were IMAX shots that were just like a close, a, close-up of Killian Murphy's face or something like that. And it's like, they're using the, the what you get from IMAX, which is like, you know, such a crisp, gigantic picture to heighten emotion. So you can see the, and and that's what, you know, like really accentuates how great Killian Murphy's performance was, is that you know, you're seeing 
every single like minute detail because it was up there on IMAX. And I and I think that the the actual bomb detonation sequence when that happened, I was like, that is the best scene Christopher Nolan's ever done. Like, I I think it's his best directing. And then the scene afterwards where he is like announcing like hey we had a successful detonation but you can see the reality set in and like he sees that he hears the screaming the people and i was like well that's probably that's the new best scene he's directed like i i think that that's nolan's strongest work is in this film yeah and and, and a director that i was kind of getting sick of as well and having like using what he's good at to for 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 good again yes i i thought it was interesting that there was a bit of like commentary around how this film didn't really um didn't really uh focus or spotlight the true atrocities mm. of what the bomb did um and i was just like well i think it was pretty horrifying like what you know that his reaction and his like you say in that film in that moment in the film where you know everyone's kind of pounding on the um and screaming and all that sort of stuff and he sees the sort of the carcass and ash i mean mm. all of the because the whole film is around his experience right like centers on him as a character the, the, so it would the, the so script b- is written in first person as well yeah it would have been like. so freaking bizarre to mm. suddenly cut away to like you know shots of what actually happened on the ground but the true horror of what was going on i don't think i i felt f- physically ill you know like but again i would say also actually read some history people like Mm. (laughs) it's like it's not this job it's not this film's job to educate you (laughs) well there's a thing that like spike lee said like i loved the film but you know i would have shown the japanese people and someone asked christopher nolan about that and he was like we're different filmmakers we have different opinions about these things what i'm focusing on is that you know spike lee's this director that i looked up that i look up to and he's a credible filmmaker he said he loved the film that's the bit i'm focusing on like we can disagree <laughs> on other parts like sure fine yeah i love that bit where they're talking about where they're gonna bomb and they don't bomb one of the cities because one of the guys went there on holiday a couple of yeah. years before it's such a chilling line yeah that's great well and you know that that wasn't scripted and yeah, the, yeah. the the actor like just picked that up in his research about the character and it's not at all certain as to whether or not that character actually did make that call mm. he just had visited there Mm. yeah something um you briefly remind moving on now from Oppenheimer but something you briefly reminded me there of Jeremy um a couple of films that have, have we've passed by but um didn't talk about is that like uh you said talking about how, you know building suspense in a film where you know what's going to happen um i was actually talking to ben affleck about this uh, a few months ago um <laughs> i was wondering where you were going with this <laughs> uh, but uh this this year a lot of people you know this is like the year of the corporate biopic because we had like the tetris movie there was a beanie babies movie um but there was blackberry, blackberry? which aj and i both saw and then air which which i saw as well about the um getting michael jordan to sign up to the air jordans and one of the questions i when i was speaking to ben affleck um for the film was that like you know how do you uh you know build building tension in a movie where everyone knows the outcome and he was he was like ah i would argue you know the outcome of every film in in a sense that like there there he sort of said that like films have a formula and like there's a certain predictability to a lot of cinema and you people are still able to do that but like um 
no air was a was a fun film it's like the dad movie of the year uh people are calling it and yeah it's just a it's just a fun movie with some with some good performances people like this is the new jerry Maguire. it's the greatest sports film of all time it's it's not but it's it's good good fun and then blackberry yeah, i watched on a plane um again so like some really good moments in it they've, they've now added some scenes back into it that were deleted and they made it into a mini series but um great performance from glenn howerton uh and then the yeah film i saw it's i saw blackberry because it um i got sent a screener for it It was the first screener i've ever been sent um and i very excitedly watched it and logged it as a three-star film on <laughs> maybe three and a half so uh one, one film that this is um and i you and i, I think feel similarly about this but the highest rated horror film of the year on letterbox is talk to me uh, this made yeah. by this these two australian guys who used to have a youtube channel called racka racka and yeah. uh, yes yeah, horror movie about a, a hand that you could talk to demons and get possessed and stuff um yeah it's it's, it's this year's elevated horror that uh completely farts its landing and uh ends up having you go away with like a problematic message which is like i was talking to my co-workers about this at um letterbox today because i just made a video that's like a screening reaction to a film coming out called the shade and Mm. the way everyone was talking all these people had just seen a previous screening of the shade they're like oh it's like the babadook it's like it follows it's like talk to me and it's like there have been five good elevated horrors i reckon or five ones that have done it properly i reckon Mm. it's it follows the babadook get out hereditary and maybe midsummer if you if you count those two um Mm. and then you've got ones like talk to me or smile or the boogeyman lights out the boogie i haven't seen the boogeyman but these these films that want to be called elevated horrors as well but they don't they don't consider the message that that Mm. is at the heart because all of these movies are about grief Ugh, it's getting so like it's becoming like a a trope yeah there was like my review on the news of um boogeyman was like if you've seen a film where like the monster is is a metaphor metaphor. for grief like if you haven't seen one of those this will blow your mind if you have this is like all of them yeah and like (laughs) just i i haven't seen the shade so not to throw shade at the shade um, (gasps) a movie coming out in 2024 maybe my first uh 2024 review i mean it's a 2023 film according to imdb oh fuck damn i'll have to rank it with the the Mm. 2023 um but i don't know i was sort of just making fun of it because it's like oh where have i heard this a thousand times and what's what sucks about talk to me is that those those two guys those directors i edited a video where they had a long form interview with george miller of mad max Mm. um and it was so fun and they're such fun guys and as a as a person who is trying who's kind of got aspirations to trying to graduate from youtube to to, to, to be a, a filmmaker and a, a film director like i should be supporting films like this i should be like studying their career but it's like i just i like to talk to me up to a point and then the ending kind of insinuates you should kill yourself well you it's know? like and yeah. that's what these movies do that's what these movies uh, yeah. do the, the, it's like it's so good in so many ways and like it's like i love the first 75 percent of it and then yeah. i love the last one percent of it 
The last the last scene is a, is a great little punchline to the concept, but yeah. I don't think it it fits the narrative. Just you know what though, change the character journey then if you yeah. want that ending. Yeah. Like don't 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 throw away your good ending because it doesn't quite gel with the message you're sending. Change the message. I think yeah. that would be well. I, I I yeah I, I I get and I like that it's supposed to be like a tragic tale, but yeah, just the the it, it just lost me towards the end. Um, the Marvels. I'm the only one that saw. Um, this is a big deal for me. This is the first MCU film yeah. that I just missed. Yeah, since like Phase Two. Yeah. You know? Uh, so th- we've talked before about how like it's it's frankly despicable to give <laughs> that like to make your films diverse after people have stopped caring about them. <laughs> and it's like and the marvels yeah. is a is a great example of that because it's like th- this was the lowest opening for a for a marvel movie ever at, like worse than the incredible hulk i think and it's like mm. this is a super fun film and you know d- like um fixes a lot of the problems people had with captain marvel and like the core trio which is like <laughs> sorry fixes a lot of the problems people have with captain marvel so they turn her into a man in the movie (laughs) yeah well she smiles more so she looks a lot prettier um (laughs) but like you know that it's like you've got um cat marvel who was like your first um female superhero um with their own film you've got she teams up with like a black woman and a muslim teenager and the the core trio in the film are so much fun and like the bit the best part of the film and but then it's like you have a forgettable villain you end up just going oh here's a cameo at the end of it um what who's the cameo at the end this time uh i think i might have already told you but like spoilers for the marvels so it ends with like oh there's a tear in the space-time continuum you have to close it from the other side and um tiana paris's um character who the whole time they're like, we need to come up with a name for you. And in the comics, I think she's called Photon. And then the film ends before they name her. But the um, she ends up going through this thing, ending up in a parallel universe. And then um, she wakes up and she's being tended to by uh, Kelsey Grammer's beast. God. <laughs> Fuck that, man. Fuck it. This the this shit sucks. I don't want to see another film about multiverses. I don't want to see another film about parallel dimensions. I'm I'm sick Welcome, of this shit. AJ. I'm Welcome AJ. Welcome to it. my world. <laughs> um, but no, the the Marvels it didn't deserve the hate that it got. It's it's a, it's a very fun movie with like a lot of great humor and a really fun core trio. Um, but forgettable villain stuff. Uh, another film that uh I, I liked more than the marbles but the um came out was uh teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem i wanted to see this so bad i just haven't gotten around this to is so i i'm on the record as not really liking the teenage mutant ninja turtles in fact i kind of hate them this film fucking rocks it's so good like yeah cool it's been it's been a great year for animation um yeah, like, it's one of these things where it's like, it sucks that this isn't even really in the conversation for, like, Oscar because it would either be Spider-Verse or Boy in the Heron. But it's like, oh my god, just, like, the art style is so great that it's, um, you know, if Spider-Verse is, like, how do we make a comic book come to life? This is, like, how do we make 
a kid's doodle come to life or like you know a kid's doodle <laughs> yeah, I felt that when I said it um but it's like it, it looks like you know sketchbook sort of thing and it's like it's got such a fun storyline the teenagers actually feel the teenage mutant turtles actually feel like teenagers for the first time but they're actually played by teenagers for the first time and they have them um because i think seth rogan said that like you know when he was doing the lion king him and billy eichner and donald glover would actually record their lines together so they could bounce off each other and so he let them do that they got them all just sitting around a table together and would just riff on each other and and it's it's they've got such a great relationship it's so fun the movie looks amazing and it's like oh i i i i wish there weren't better films than this this year because Mm -hmm. it feels like it slipped under the radar a little bit but yeah a lot Mm -hmm. of fun uh meek to the trench terrible you really need to talk about terrible film terrible film uh haunted mansion do you really need to talk God, about Haunted Mansion? Almost worse than Meg 2, The Trench. <laughs> Haunted Mansion, man. What, oh, fuck. What a boring film. Uh, Gran Turismo. Do you really need to talk about <laughs> Gran Turismo? <laughs> Gran Turismo is actually pretty decent. It's not bad. Where does it rank in Neil Blomkamp's filmography? Probably second. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe I should check it out. Yeah. It, it's like... Uh, uh, yeah i was gonna say it doesn't feel like a blomkamp film but it's like there is enough visually interesting stuff in it um that it that it kind of works the main guy is um farley from um saltburn oh wow yeah at the end of saltburn i was like when the credits came i was like i know i recognize that name i was like oh because i yeah also his mum is played by jerry halliwell just randomly (laughs) (laughs) what yeah It's so weird. Yeah, it's yeah. You can't just cast Jerry Halliwell as a character. It's gotta <laughs> yeah, be like yeah, yeah. a cameo or like a joke in some way. Yeah. Uh but yeah, also in August we have Do you know what it'll be? I bet she's a massive fan of the of the game. Or, or her kids are or something. Yeah, and they were like, oh, get in the Gran Turismo movie, mum. And she's like, fine, I'll exercise my clout for the first time in 30 years <laughs> and get in the Gran Turismo movie. Yeah. I like how like 30 years ago she was like at the height of her fame in spy skills mm. or like not even yet and so it's like the idea that she didn't exercise her clout f- during her entire run of the spy skills uh, you know the point i'm making <laughs> uh but yeah uh the uh, what aj called the uh return to form for the sex comedy bottoms Totally. Oh my gosh. So Rich and I have both seen this and I'm looking at our spreadsheet and Jeremy's tick is once again not there and there's no movie on this list I'm more heartbroken that Jeremy hasn't seen than Bottoms. Because Jeremy, when we first started becoming friends, we watched, we would watch movies that were like on the the, the dying last gasp of like the the studio comedy right like i feel like we watched like our idiot brother and things like that <laughs> this is back in christchurch in like 2012 we would watch like these kinds of movies and then they went away for a while and now they are back and they're better than ever or at least this one is i there is a video essay in me about the mm. fact that everyone touted no hard feelings as the the triumphant return but bottoms is the evolution 
of the teen sex comedy, I think. Bottoms is so fucking funny. It's so good. It's so horny and, like, unabashedly so. But, like, I think because it's, like, directed by a woman and about, like, queer women, it's, like, a fresh and not problematic take on it where um, it's it's so good and it's so funny. It's fine funny. if women manipulate people to get laid. Well, I mean, the mo- the movie itself criticizes that as well. But but my point is is more that like this takes the like ashes of American Pie and goes. We liked the vibe of these movies. And it we, fucks we, them. We we liked when Salt the. Style. We liked when, um, you know, every you'd go to the video store and there were all these like horny looking movies on the shelves. We don't get them anymore. So like the director went in to make that to to make a. I think I I edited an interview with Emma Seligman. I think Mm. her name is. She said basically she made the movie that she would have wanted to see when she was a teenager. And so as I say, like it's got the DNA of American Pie and. Euro trip and shit in there, but it builds on it and actually is intelligent and smart and like thoughtful with it. And like, it's not like, it's not, I guess it's woke in a sense, but it's like, it's pro- the, the What's problematic. Woke that there's women in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The prob- <laughs> the problematic elements of it are like part of the text yeah. in this case. And beyond that, it is also just fucking hysterical it is so funny i don't i don't remember the last time i laughed so hard in a movie and i gave it five stars and that's very and AJ, AJ, you called me when you finished it and you were just i like, called richard i called richard up and i was like hey i know we recommend stuff to each other a lot and then never follow up on it as, as but a like joke as a joke <laughs> we, we we deprive each other of ourselves of like mm. good media because the other recommended it yeah. but like I, this is just the like this is we talked about fist fight earlier this has very similar um ideas to mm. what's so good about the final scene the fist fight um fuck it's good i, I, I think this so is funny. another movie that aj overhyped to hurt my feelings oh you didn't like it no i did I just think you may be overhyped. Damn, I was trying to hurt your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Jeremy, the takeaway is you should watch. I think you'd fucking love it, man. Yeah, it's I, so I wish I'd gone to see this in a cinema because it had, I think it either had no cinematic run here or very it limited. Didn't, yeah, it didn't. Um, it didn't but yeah, so I just watched it at home and was kind of like, yeah, it was pretty good. Like, I, yeah, I didn't get the hysterics that you, that you got from it. I mean, it's a very, very funny movie, but I don't think I actually laughed that much at it it's been a long time since i've had a proper proper laugh at a movie Mm. honestly maybe get a couple friends around and and watch it's on amazon prime um yeah it's just yeah it's it's silly and exciting and fun it's about a couple of lesbians in high school who want to bang the cheerleaders so they start a fight club it's great (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's funny like it's on amazon prime so looking for this film i went on to amazon prime and i was like typed in bottoms and it was like uh, I, don't, I don't know what you want dude like okay and then so i went into like the google chrome homepage, search bottoms and it was like oh that's on amazon prime i'll pull it up for you fucking annoying <laughs> <laughs> weird um so what for a long time for a while was my top film of the year and i still maybe think is the, one of my favorite films of the year is uh past lives which is um a, a, a very simply it's about a love triangle but it's a lot more 
sort of complex than that. Beautiful yeah, and, and the same way in the same way that I feel like Jeremy would find bottoms hilarious, I feel like you would find past lives breathtaking jeremy yeah <laughs> um, so you should you should check that you should check out past lives it's so good yeah i have it i have it queued yeah i am um, I, I was ready to go and then and we I, had to start I, this fucking podcast <laughs> no no i i prioritized um i prioritized watching fast x <laughs> <laughs> well I, I will say that i was um incredibly sleepy and i was sitting in a, a very dark cinema and spent most of the movie glazing my eyes glazed over and just sort of phase it i what i would do for a bit of this movie was i would refocus my eyes to read the subtitles because a lot of it's since a lot of it's in um is it korean korean yeah. yeah a lot of it's in korean so i would like refocus to read the subtitles and then just let my eyes fall away again it was a hellish way to watch the film i don't recommend it <laughs> yeah no I, I was so disappointed when you gave this four stars well, I'll say this. I have thought about this movie a lot since I fell asleep. Watch- well, I didn't actually fall asleep, but I got very close to it. Shut up, I wasn't um, sleeping. <laughs> uh, so, like, if that, that's, like, I when I first saw it, I was like, oh, yeah. And as I've thought about it, it's, like, crept on me and, like, such an elegantly small story. Oh, you know what I mean? Beautiful. Like, it's it's, it's so film. intimate and, and like, the, the, ch- the character changes in it are, like infinitesimal but that's sort of what's so beautiful about it isn't it amazing when you see on screen something that is art Mm. and you go like what is happening here is so close to the most beautiful things that can happen in real life Mm. and yet these people are just acting and this Mm. these words were written down and this Mm. isn't actually real life Mm. but this is like it's portraying a it's portraying the most beautiful or the most sort of heart-wrenching or, you know, whatever it is. Like, it's yeah. it's portraying a part of the human experience that is so uh, extremely, like, either exquisite or horrifying or whatever that it's moving me and changing me as a person. Yeah. And what's really, what's really hard about that is when those, when something like that as a film is like a tiny little treasure box. Like what I'm hearing from you guys is that like, it's, it's a small personal film. That's like not, it's not swinging for the fences. It's not doing anything massive, but actually in the small shifts, it actually is doing something massive. Mm. And it's really sad to me that like often those movies are really overlooked because well, there's, you know, not much money changing hands Mm. In those films, because they don't, no one expects them to do big money at the box office or anything, and they don't get seen by as many people, mm. and so they don't necessarily get rewarded at the at the you know awards time as much, and so then they don't get seen. But oh, yeah, this I don't is going to get nominated in a, in a dozen categories at the Oscars. Uh-huh. Oh no, no it has, and it has been, but I just think there's so many films like this. But like this doesn't have a chance against Oppenheimer, you know, like it doesn't have a chance against sort of. Sure the other stuff that's going on in the Oscars this but year. I, and so... Yeah, I was that, like... Because... Um, and, and so this was actually... This was the last film I reviewed um, for One News. And I... The director, Celine Song, came to New Zealand for screenings of it. And I had, like, a half-hour sit-down interview with her. And it was, like... It was so good. She was so lovely. And um, one, one of the sort of things I was talking to her about is that it's, like because of what this film is that it's like a childhood sweetheart and then they grow apart reconnect and then she goes off and and marries a different guy but there's always that kind of like what could have been that it's like there is 
a hundred lesser versions of this film where like the guys are Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson and <laughs> they are just and, and like they're just fighting over and, and she was sort of saying that it's like there's something really compelling about adults acting like adults and the whole thing of the film is that it's like these these three people who love like these two guys that love this woman so much in different ways and truly want her to be happy and neither guy is the villain like you're introduced to one earlier so you're probably more likely to side with him but like everyone in the situation is mature and it makes it so much more complicated yeah cool that's a great way to put it Mm. um so uh, i felt that i i I had a few hours to kill and uh, when i was on sheffield and uh it was tossing up between a few different movies but ended up going to a haunting in venice uh the latest which is the first time on this in these two episodes that it's you and jeremy have seen it but i haven't yeah so let me sit back (laughs) and eat my dried chickpeas i love dried chickpeas man these taste fucking crazy what what flavor are they Sour Char- cream and chives. Shana cracker. <laughs> they don't have a flavor. Uh, can I see the the packet? They're just spiced. Oh, yeah. Nice. Love. That. Anyway, um, Haunting in Venice. Mm. Uh, Haunting in Venice is like... It's it's insane that the same person made Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile was oh, so know, fucking seriously. bad. That, like, this, <laughs> this was marketed as, like... It was because I saw people saying online, I mean, I didn't really follow the marketing, but they were like, it's crazy that people don't know this is the third in a trilogy. Like people are like, oh, that Michelle Yeoh ghost movie, that looks cool. Um, yeah. And and it's it's so, the trailer so clearly leans into like, this is a horror movie. Yeah. But it's... Um, and it really isn't. No, it's, it's a... It, it's, oh God, it's so much better than Death on the Nile though. But it's interesting that it's like, this is... This is the same filmmaker that made Belfast making this film. There's, it's visually exciting and interesting, and the, I can't remember. To be honest, I can't remember much of the actual mystery, but like, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's just it's just such a bit of made film. <laughs> mm. I think it's also it's in a more compelling location. I think the Nile lends itself to kind of cliche, like visual mm. cliche. Um, it's hard to do something that's like that feels that feels kind of like filled with i mean i don't know actually that maybe i'm just i'm being too generous like the death on the nile felt like it was plastic in every mm. way like it was just all cgi plastic shiny horrendousness and it you know for for something that was purporting to be a period film like felt so harshly modern it was ridiculous um this very much felt like embedded in its context like venice very interesting place to set a film Mm. the actual house that it was set in um i think that it was weird having a cast that was sort of like a third of the cast were quite famous people and then the rest the the rest of the cast were just absolute nobodies Mm. and basically like you've got you know murder on the orient express which sort of was the high watermark of all the famous people Mm. and then death on the mile the nile kind of like the next level down and then this one even although michelle yo like i mean what a year to get her in your film um, I mean, but like Tina Fey is mm. definitely a tear down from Michelle Yeoh in terms of film. Mm. Um, although Tina Fey was was actually quite good in this, I thought. Um, I yeah, I just think there are diminishing returns on this whole 
revival of the whodunit. Yeah. Like, especially when, especially after Knives Out, you kind of go, oh, like, you're going to have to do something pretty special. I did think that the, it was, like you say, definitely better than Death on the Nile. Possibly even better than the um, remake of Murder on the Orange Express. The classic scene where he sort of explains how he knows everything that happened. I think there were too many jumps in kind of his like, oh yes, and he figured that out because of right. this. Which is and maybe it's like, more of a problem with Agatha Christie. Yes, 100%. But I mean, I haven't read the book, so I don't know what she offered. But like, it just very much did seem like he saw one thing under a bed and then somehow knew whole conversations mm. that characters had had without any because evidence Because this of- was under the bed, I can figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, honestly, it's worth the price of admission just for the final shot of him uh, talking on the rooftop of the sort of location yeah, yeah. in Venice he's in. And there's a massive shot. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. So yeah, they had a lot of fun there. All right. So up next after Haunting in Venice, we've got... Uh, dumb money and i just want to say i cannot keep up the charade any longer guys <laughs> we tried to pretend like nothing changed but it has been a week since we discussed a haunting in venice and now <laughs> i i didn't want to lie to the fans i, I mm. felt like i was lying to myself if i just rolled yeah. straight on into dumb money without acknowledging yeah. the gigantic elephant in the room well you know if if this was a podcast that ever got anywhere close to like sponsorships and things, what a great place to put an ad in mm. between those the two the the gap that we took in real life. But unfortunately, um, eight years in the better half of a decade, we've been doing this, mm. and <laughs> we've only had one sponsor in that time, and they swiftly pulled any further sponsorships when I think we made them zero money. I thought you were going to say eight years in and we still have yet to be able to finish one of these records in a decent amount of time (laughs) that too that too um you could almost say that this sponsorship we got was rather dumb money Mm. for them because we got it pretty we got given a a payment for it and then i i worry that they (laughs) got nothing out of it oh yeah never spoken to them again (laughs) yeah well so dumb money and i'm glad we took the break when we did because i know it's the kind of movie you guys would be like do we really need to fucking talk about this only you've seen Mm. it richard who gives a shit i still feel exactly the same way but okay (laughs) well you can get fucked jeremy yeah but jeremy now at the start of a record you have more patience to like allow for it at the end of a three-hour record if richard wants to talk about a movie only he's seen you and i would both be like richard pause the pause off pod richard we need to move on (laughs) now now it's fine so um yeah dumb money this is about the GameStop short squeeze that happened in january of 2021 and it's one of these things that like I knew a little bit about, but not really a lot. Like, I, I remember it happening. Uh, but it's it's such a fun movie. And just, mm. like, the way it's made. And it's it's one of those things that sort of made me think, like, is Craig Gillespie one of my favorite directors? Like, is, <laughs> is he now one of my, like, sure thing directors? Because, like, his last few movies, Dumb Money, Cruella, I, Tonya. He also made Fright Night 2011, uh, he directed a bunch of Pam and Tommy, the TV series. And it's like, yeah, just like everything he does, I've, in recent years anyway, like, I've 
enjoyed and has been a heck of a lot of fun but the the things i I sort of want to say about this is like it's got a great cast um you've got like paul dano playing the um what's the keith gill and he he goes by like um total fucking value is his reddit username and he's the one that sort of like started off this whole short squeeze and it's like he feel like paul dano is an actor who it's like he's a great actor but i i've never really like loved him in anything because i just i find him so like off-putting and creepy creepy. and he he just feels like a really like lived in real character in this but the one thing that sort of i found super interesting and because we talked a couple years ago about like pandemic movies and like what pandemic movies were going to look like and how the pandemic would affect it and like should it even be part of movies you know should we just ignore that it happened and like this is a movie where it's like the pandemic is like a character in the movie but it's not like Mm. super important because it's like the fact that all these people were like people were losing their jobs losing money that they were turning to these sort of like quote-unquote get-rich-quick schemes and like playing the stock market and a lot of the the whole thing that happened is that like people who weren't getting into stocks were thinking like well fuck maybe i'll give this a shot and yeah it's just like the the, we said i said this during uh glass onion but like how the wearing masks is like such a great insight into people's characters and Mm -hmm. so like you have like anthony ramos is like um works at a GameStop, and he keeps on you know like pulled down his mask to talk to his boss and his boss is always like you know taps his taps his nose to show him that you need need to be wearing his mask and yeah i don't know it was like it was interesting that like something that happened well now three years ago can feel like such a period piece yeah yeah and like i'm all for it i'm past the please don't make movies about the pandemic stage and now i'm like let's get some pandemic movies Mm. like what an interesting time to set a film now that we're like on the out of it um i didn't see this movie but i did edit a guess your movie game with craig gillespie which is the (laughs) second of two guess your movie games we've done for letterboxd and it's my favorite show we do and it's the (laughs) rarest one we do and it's so they're so fun to edit and craig gillespie seemed like a a really cool guy i liked uh, there was there was a question about friday night 2011 in there and i got to download footage from it and i was like yeah i remember this movie this movie's awesome um (laughs) One one criticism I saw of this, again, didn't see it, but saw of it, was like, it's a movie about the little guy taking on hmm. the stock market, and they cast, like, recognisable A-listers as the little guys, and it's like, I know, like, Seth Rogen and shit uh, play, like, the, the high ups, but yeah. I do wonder if Paul Dano needed to be not Paul Dano, if he needed to be someone no one had heard of so that you don't watch it and go paul dano's not struggling for money like he's one of the people that he's in real life he's like part of the like yeah rich that's a you know? uh i think that's a bizarre criticism yeah that's Why? like a criticism you could make of any movie starring and an, i will a famous actor and actress starring who... paul dano i will <laughs> yeah i i think that this like, is i just like... don't agree with sandra bullock's casting in the blind side because she was playing a woman who up until that point no one had heard of <laughs> yeah well i mean okay. there are there have issues have I'm come up about the blind bizarre. side i i think i think it's insane frankly like I, I, one of those things where it's like people looking for a reason to complain about a movie like who gives a shit 
<laughs> I give a shit. I think that's stupid I think, to give a shit. I think you guys are acting like casting can be anything. Casting's super important. Casting's like, you can yeah, be, yeah, do but, but it doesn't, you're just arguing that undermine the film in any way. You're arguing that any movie featuring a character that is supposed to be a regular person, like Mark Wahlberg wouldn't have a career if we if we applied that rule to anything he did. Yeah. Like Ted? Yeah. Ted 2? The list goes I on. I wouldn't be able to watch those movies. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, like, it's an ensemble cast. I, I think, like, everyone in this film pretty much is a recognizable name. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 having seen the movie, I think that's... A very silly complaint. Having seen any movie, I think it's a very silly <laughs> argument. <laughs> I think, genu- genuinely, I think you guys need to open your mind a bit. I'm shocked by this, like, like not maybe not this movie specifically. I understand. I get, I I get metatextual casting, and I'm a big fan of it, but it's like, I, I also don't think that Paul Dano's the kind of, like, asshole A-lister that I'm like, oh, fuck that guy. He has so much money. Yeah, imagine if it was like Jared Leto playing the main character. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And so, so it's like, I, I don't get, and also that like one of my like praises of this movie is that like Paul Dano is so good at it and at just playing a regular guy, which is something that I didn't know he could do. Like mm. all his mannerisms, the way he speaks, he's not doing that sort of Paul Dano weirdness in the film. He just he seems like a well, you know, I say normal in quotation marks kind of guy. Um, because nice. he's playing this this lol kitty uh, stock market YouTuber, but um, lol kitty as in lol cats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, just clarifying. That's what you mean. Yeah, he, he he's, um, he's got this whole thing about cats, but he's um. But the other the, the last thing I'll sort of say on the movie is that like it is it's a fascinating, but also just like an incredibly frustrating because it's it's the story about how you like you see it, the little guy taking on the the big uh corporations but it's like the end of it and this is what happened in real life is that it's like yeah the government just bailed out the big corporations and the little guy ended up mm. still losing because it's like yeah the system is broken i mean it, ha- I mean, it has but- caused some changes and like um a lot of those hedge funds um operate differently now but yeah for the worse yeah um i i remember when this happened in real life watching a clip from like fox news or something and there was some old rich guy being interviewed about it and he starts weeping and Mm. they're like what's up and he's like it's just you know because i care and it was the least sorry I've ever felt for someone crying mm. was this old rich man complaining that the free market was being utilized by the lower the class. Wrong people, you know? yeah. <laughs> like it's like this is what it's about, you fucking dipshit. Yeah. Crying, what a loser. Yeah. No, like I would recommend the movie, especially, you know, someone who's uh into class warfare as yourself, AJ. Thank you so much. But be prepared that it's you will recognize to- the lead actor. <laughs> I'll be like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a problem I have with every movie. I watch like, I don't know. Ted. Give me a Ted. And I'm like, isn't that, <laughs> why is Mark Wahlberg? Hanging out with like, the swearing We can't idiot. escape from Mark Wahlberg. It's like, you set up an example and then it's just go with that for the rest of the day. <laughs> but but like for those listening at home, it's this weird Mark Wahlberg thing introduced halfway through the, the, yeah, the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Hang so, on a minute, but did you did you feel the same way when you're watching The Crown and be like, hang on a minute, Elizabeth Debicki is nowhere near as famous as Diana. I can't believe her in this role. <laughs> I did not watch The Crown as my excuse there. That's how much I hate and class that's the reason, warfare. And that's the reason why ah! you didn't watch it. No, AJ, you love class warfare. Oh, sorry, I love class warfare, but I don't want to... Um... You hate classes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the warfare between them. Uh, Expendables 4, none of us saw it, but it's like, I don't know a single person that saw this, and I can't believe it came out this year. All the I, anecdote I, <laughs> I can I can offer about this is I thought that it was really funny that the director of this made like a John Cena movie before it, and in the trailer for that movie, I can't remember what it was called, one of the things it said, from the director of Expendables 4, which was not out yet, oh, wow. and I just thought that was that was really, like, desperate, because yeah. they're like, no one's going to see this movie, we'll chuck in Expendables 4, most people will just go, right, the Expendables, they won't yeah. think, like... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next goal wins. None of us saw. Um, this is this has got to be the biggest surprised I didn't see it movie of the list. I reckon. Um, because I think when next, first of all, next goal wins has been a movie. I don't know if you gentlemen remember. Yeah. We have discussed this probably going back to like most disappoint or most anticipated films of 2018. Like this has been. It's, well, wasn't yeah. this the next movie he was meant to move on to after the first Thor that he did? Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been ages, and in that time, Taika Waititi's like stock Twitter film Twitter stock has fallen so much, and then I just heard really middling reviews about this and didn't see it, and it's like fuck, man, that's mm. crazy. No one saw the new Taika Waititi film. No one in New Zealand is really talking about it, and it has like you know it has like the naked Samoan guys in it, mm. like but also like we. When this was first announced, and I don't know, I mean, you know, researchers can go back and and see what I said about it when it was first announced if we did talk about it. But I was like, what is the story here? Like, they didn't win anything. So, like, it's you can't make it. I mean, it's very hard to make an inspiring sports film about an underdog sports team who, you know, performs basically (laughs) as expected. Rocky, well, we one should, of the greatest sports should, films of all time. Yeah, maybe the quintessential sports film he loses. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I, I have to respectfully disagree with you there, Jeremy. Um, That's not, okay. Not I used I, the word I respectfully. Respect. I didn't use that earlier with AJ's insane criticism of uh, dumb money. But the I think it's a fair criticism. I think it's insane. Um, but the I, I, I love a sports film where it's about. Proving the you we had, made along the way. Well, it's about proving you had the ability to go the distance, not to actually win. Or like we're making it to. I again, I haven't seen Dex Girl wins, but like making it to the qualifier is enough. You know, well, I guess Cool Runnings. You know, the yeah. greatest sports film of all time. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. Um. Uh. Eddie the Eagle. I don't know, like where it's it's a lot more um it's a lot more about trying for the human spirit. True. I, I I apologize and withdraw my critique. It's it's bullshit. It just looks like the movie sucks. <laughs> uh so yeah, the movie The Creator, which was uh the new film from Gareth Edwards, um, about AI warfare. Mm. It's about class warfare kind of, AJ. If one of the classes was AI. <laughs> um what an interesting movie to talk about in how uninteresting I find it now. Mm. I think when 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 this came out, it was like, "Hey, uh, original IP sci-fi mm. is out." Gareth Edwards, pretty you know, pretty good Has track it made record a film since Rogue One. 
Yeah, like, like I think this could have been more of a big deal than it was, but it really wasn't. Did this flop? Did this bomb? Uh, like yeah, bomb. I'd, I'd probably call it a flop, yeah. Well, the, pro- the problem is the movie concept had basically already been covered and done per- done to perfection by Mission Impossible. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> who needs to see more about AI after the after the entity? It is funny that, that Mission Impossible feels like an AI villain in the context of, like, everyone's um, fears of where AI at is currently, whereas the creator feels like it was written in 2019 mm. before AI was, like, a popular buzz term, and... It's so unintentionally loaded because the movie is like, the movie sort of equates the AI robots almost, you know, to like a subjugated To like refugees, yeah. Refugees. And it's like, are you trying to make me feel sorry for AI in maybe the most tumultuous time for AI in history so far? Um, Yeah, I I do think that it's um, like watching the movie and it's like oh the ai took over and now you know we've got this like class warfare with them i was like uh this is the most like releasing this in 2023 this is the most fucking on the nose shit like i've seen this Mm. and then the movie becomes like actually ai are kind of the good guys and i was like you're releasing this in 2023 (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um i will say like didn't didn't hate it or anything but haven't thought about it yeah, that's true. I haven't really thought about it much since seeing it. I will say that the aspect of it that I found the most fascinating was that um, they have an ability with AI cops, and you could do a whole movie about this, where um, not just AI cops, but AI robots in general, they look indistinguishable from humans in a lot of cases. There's a big fucking um, hole in their head. Yeah, yeah. But if they die, you can eject their memory card, put it into another... AI body and for about 30 seconds you can ask how they died and mm. they wake up and are suddenly like what the hell's going on or is it humans you can do it to and put you can put human memory in an AI uh, yeah. bank for like 30 seconds very interesting I thought to, to most interesting scene in the film is them talking to a a dead human through an AI mm. robot's body I thought that was fascinating yeah uh jeremy it's your time to take over the mic uh because paw patrol the mighty movie (laughs) is this the only movie jeremy's seen that none of us have i think so no i well full movie perhaps um (laughs) so this this was fun this is a great memory for me (laughs) terrible movie but great memory um this was the first film that i took my daughter too so it's the first film that she's ever seen in the cinema and i mean look if we're gonna go by ivy's review absolutely enraptured like just best film of the year oh best best hands down best film of the year best (laughs) film of her lifetime wow (laughs) also worst also most middling um so yeah um went to the yep i got popcorn for her got a wee little drink she was just so excited sat on the edge of her seat um didn't know going in that Sky, the um, the only girl dog out of the original Paw Patrol members, um, they've since added more girls, which is great. Um, Sky was her favorite character, and the whole movie basically uh, centers around her kind of like wrestling with her identity as the runt of the litter, and um, and and figuring out that she's still she's still got like you know abilities and powers and she's still valuable um it's a you know beautiful storyline um really um i have to say the villain was quite underwhelming um 
but yeah, Ivy had a great time. I sat next to her, basically watched her most of the time because she was much more entertaining than the film. Um, <laughs> but for the target market, great movie. Suggest it for anyone aged three to five. Imagine if the villain in Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, was captivating. Imagine if the villain was this, like, grotesque, sinister, like, all-timer, and everyone was like, yeah, the movie's kind of average, but the villain was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and Ivy's, like, legitimately traumatized forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, it's not actually on our list, and I mentioned it earlier on as something that none of us saw, but Five Nights at Freddy's also came out in October um you know mm. the, the the big video game film of the year it's in the last week i was like you know what i'm gonna watch five nights at freddy's because people you know critics hate it but the fans love it and i it's very rare that i do this but i got like halfway through the movie and i was like this is so fucking boring and i turned it on <laughs> you, jeremy did. Yeah. you did a jeremy didn't you but i do i do want to tell you guys my experience with five nights at freddy's and spoilers for five nights at freddy's here um I didn't realize that I think it was like a day and date on streaming sort of thing. And one of these things where like, just kind of, I saw the casting announcements and it's like, Oh, um, Matthew Lillard's in it. He's playing William Afton who through, you know, like a pop culture osmosis, I understand is an important figure in the five nights at Freddy's law. And then the trailer came out and he's like got a little plinth on his desk that he's playing a different character. And so I was like, Oh, okay. It's probably a twist then that he's William Afton or something like that. And then I saw on Twitter, like a couple of days after it came out or maybe a week, um, that it was like, it was one of those tweets. that's like, fuck it. The entirety of five nights at Freddy's. And then I hit play on it and it was like the actual universal logo in HD. And I was like, Oh, it's, so it's cause I assumed it would be a camera up. And then I was like, so is this the actual movie? I assumed it was going to be a Rickroll or like, you know, just some of the gameplay or something like that. So I just clicked to a random point in the video and the screenshot I got was um, Matthew Lillard wearing a like Freddy Fazbear suit, holding the Freddy mask above his head as if he's just taken it off. And I was like this is probably the twist in the movie, right? <laughs> that, like, he was behind it? Um, and then, yeah, watching the movie, it's, like, never brought up that he's, like, he's, like, oh, yeah, I kind of know this place that you can uh, be a security guard at um, when Josh Hutchison is being, like, can't can't hold down a job because he's too violent. But, um, but, yeah, it's funny just going and <laughs> that, like, just happened to click on, like, Huh, this has probably ruined the movie for me. And now I've ruined it for you guys. Thank you so much. Um, the main reviews I heard from this is everyone who hasn't played the games being utterly baffled at the like weight of the lore that is crammed into this. Because I think I think it's very easy to go, oh, a horror movie about animatronic animals like puppets at a at a Chuck E. Cheese type place. Great. Ripe, ripe for horror. What a fun hmm. horror movie that could be. And then apparently the whole thing is so like dragged down by insisting on inserting the like wealth of mm. five nights at freddy's law that that permeates the video yeah. well i watched so. like almost an hour of it and like nothing really happened and it, there was no but i will say and i, I that's know, the law i don't know if this means anything to you but um matt pat is in the movie Are you mm. familiar with matt pat i think so and he because he, he, he's the game theory guy who's like after all it's a just game theory yeah. <laughs> so in the film he plays a waiter at a diner that they're at and they go like 
he's like oh you better finish that up lunch is the most important meal of the day and they're like i thought it was breakfast and he goes some say that but it's just a theory Ugh. horrible <laughs> stop writing movies like that that's my <laughs> that's my thing i want i want to create a term and there probably already is one on tv tropes for when a film that's part of like a wider intellectual property uh acknowledges a meme an internet meme by putting it in the dialogue like with obi-wan and when he says hello there and in the, in the obi-wan series mm. because i reckon it has never been good it's only isn't ever it just been... a fourth wall break but it's like it's it's a step forward more than that because it's it's basically saying to the audience we know what internet memes are we know a what wink they a, are a wink and a nod I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, maybe that's it. So, uh, AJ, uh, the mic is now being taken away from you, and I'm giving it over no, to Jeremy. No, no. <laughs> uh, the Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which, Jeremy, you and I only just watched last week. Um, not together, but the... Um, <laughs> Definitely not. But yeah, this is the prequel to The Hunger Games. It's uh, I knew it was about the uprising of snow, but... It was interesting, like, when the film was announced and when it was coming out, I was like, I actually haven't heard from anyone who read the book. I haven't heard anything about the book. Um, I don't know if it's any good or not. And then the film came out and people seemed to enjoy it enough, yeah. It was just so, so different to Mm. the release of the original Hunger Games trilogy movies. Like, Mm. the Hunger Games was, like, this massive book that was just, like, already a pop culture phenomenon and then the movies came along and it was like Jennifer Lawrence and, you know, just swept mm. swept it into an even greater height of fervor. Mm. And so sort of for a prequel book to come out and there'd be like, I mean, I guess I'm, I've well aged out of the mm. YA kind of uh, demographic now. Mm. You're just on the A <laughs> but, demographic now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I certainly, you know, the, the murmurings of pop culture kind of hadn't reached my ears about the book and then i saw the movie and i was like oh well, I see. and then i heard that the movie was based on the book that um, the original author had written as well mm. and honestly this is just one of those cases a of a of a prequel existing because just because it it has to for money's sake it feels like yeah this is no i saw it described com- as like um it's a franchise coming back because the studio wanted it to not because the fans wanted it to yeah, or because there was actually a compelling story to be told. Mm. And like, I mean, the thing is, it's just very, very odd to mm. base a prequel on like the rise of your villain. I mean, I guess the episode one to three kind of yeah. uh, gets Probably the gets most famous there, prequels like, ever made. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but like, at least there's other people oh. who sort of... 
Jeremy, you don't have to pretend the Star Wars prequels were good. I think no, that no, exactly, aids your but, point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not Gen Z. I don't think they were good. Um, but <laughs> they, it's just like at the end, of the, this film A should have been two movies, 100%. If any it's, movie it's very, had, like, the, the film is very two halves. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the second half is definitely the worst half. Like, it's just, you finish, basically, you finish the Hunger Games in the film, and you just go, oh, sweet Lord, there's more. There's like an hour, an hour more. more. yeah. Um, and, and a whole different story. Like, it's just, you know, it, and, and then characters also, I'd say characters in the second half of the film, or the, that, that, that last hour, basically start acting completely differently and almost with completely different motivations to what they were doing and how they were acting in the first two hours of the movie Mm. and it's just all of a sudden they just go like oh that's right we have to we have to get this train to the station that we like start off the other trilogy on sometimes literally quickly let's just let's change direction entirely and it just feels very just why and unsatisfying i understand what you're saying but if any franchise is toying with splitting the source material Mm. into two parts good luck arguing to the hunger games producers to do that again because it fucking destroyed the original oh true i I think it could have been a decent series like it's it's one of these films that like uh simultaneously feels rushed and like dragged out but there's yes a like it's it's like two hours 45 which is which is a, a chunky movie but the the thing that i sort of felt watching it and and i read a bunch of reviews from people who have read the book afterwards is that it's like i think this would make a better book to be honest and it sounds like having his in a monologue um yeah because i think it's written in the first person is makes a lot more sense because the, the whole thing is like this sociopath um manipulating everyone around him to become the president snow that we know and i yes. think that he's kind of play like tom Blythe and rachel ziegler both like they're both good performances they're both fun to watch but they are like he almost plays it like too relatable and you get the sense. Mm. i think you're not supposed to or you're supposed to always wonder if he actually cared about her or not and so the film ends with um him shooting at her and then she just disappears and you never see um he never sees her again and it's like that that sort of fuels snow's like uh quest for power because but there's this like this this one songbird out there that he never knows what happened to and he'll never be able to control and yeah i i i just think that his like descent into madness sociopathy wasn't done super well and it's like Completely. i i would have rather seen I mean, you know, it's hard to make a film about like an emotionless psychopath, but like having the reveal at the end that it's like, oh, he actually never like every single step he's done was manipulative and it's not it's not really paid off in the way that I would have liked. Yeah, because the way that the way that it's all filmed and edited together and and the, the characterizations, you really it's like it wants to tip the audience into kind of a will he won't he mm. like you know actually feel for her and does he actually really care for her like he intended to start out very self interested but along the way he clearly has moments where he's just like oh wait actually I'm I'm too invested in her now and I'm just you know and they. Yeah, I I agree with you. If if this was told from his perspective in his mind and you're hearing his thoughts all the time in a book, 
that I can imagine that that would be a lot more satisfying because you're aware of the battle or more mm. aware of the battle because, but otherwise you just get what he actually does in action. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess the performance could tip the scales a little bit more yeah. if he was showing a bit more on his face of that, you know, internal struggle yeah, or if it was a struggle. But I mean, otherwise I think the movie is beautiful. Like the, yeah. the film it's not, is, it's I mean, not a bad movie. It, it's a good, it actually, it actually, star movie. It brought me, it brought me back to like just well-made movies of this kind. Mm. You know, like it was definitely like shot beautifully. The performances, you know, on a whole were were really good. Um, Rachel Ziegler's performances and, and her singing were just amazing. Mm. Like I, I loved all of them. They were beautiful. I think um, it's crazy. She shot this before. She's no, sorry. so she she shot Snow White before she shot this, and Snow White doesn't come out till twenty twenty five. Yeah, Snow White's years away, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> What's well, now it away, is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was a. I would say, yeah, like three and a half star journeyman workman style movie, really well done, but ultimately a little bit hollow. I think because more because of the story. And I mean, at the end, I, I miss I messaged you guys about it, but at the end, you know, like you see him, like he's fully abandoned his any sense of wanting to maintain a relationship with um, Rachel Ziegler's character, and you know, he he sort of is rising to power, mm. and they have this shot of him walking through the streets of. Um, what is it? is it Pan Am City? Um, well, the, the, you know, the he's, and, and he's walking. He's he's they they put him in this very kind of like symmetrical, you know, well framed kind of hero shot, looking up at him. The music is kind of swelling, and it's not like I don't know. For me, it was very like heroic rather than scary. Like they even have like you know him looking at this fountain, and there's like a beautiful rainbow sheen that goes across the fountain, and it's like this swelling music. I'm like, what are we meant to think about this character at the end of this movie? It's just like, I know where he goes as a as a character in the, in the end of the story, so I know it's terrible, and he's basically kind of Hitler. But like the movie's kind of showing me that like, oh, That's look at this thing. amazing person. Yeah, I, I don't know that I necessarily got that from the ending, but I see where you're coming from. I went back and took screenshots of it because I was going to, I know you, you said that and I was just like, how on earth did you miss that kind of sensibility? Anyway. No, it's just, it's just that I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's like, oh, look how cool this guy is in the, end, in the ending. Sure. It's fine. Uh, anyway, speaking of cool guys, uh, Saltburn, <laughs> one of the big, this year's like big talking point speaking movie. Speaking of cool guys, is such a funny way to talk about Saltburn. Speaking of massive dicks. <laughs> uh, yeah, Saltburn's kind of become the big talking point it's film the, of the year. and it's, Yeah, it's the biggest movie of the year right now. It's, it's top rated on most logged film on Letterboxd two weeks in a row, wow. despite being you know a couple of months after its release yeah well i mean it's you know it's on amazon prime and people are mm. finally getting to it but it's that the, there's word of mouth i think is a big part of it yeah but it is funny that it's like um a lot of people there's a lot now a lot of backlash about it and it's one of those films that becomes so big that people are like well it's not that good and a lot of people like the the meme is now that it's like if you don't watch many movies Saltburn is the craziest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I watch plenty of movies, and it's probably and the craziest thing I've ever seen. Well, I'm, it's it's not it's not like it's shocking, but it's not shocking in ways I'm unequipped to 
Like I'm not I'm not going home haunted by the bathtub scene. Mm. I think it's 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 a good scene, but it's the, the like yeah, what I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too here by being like I still really liked the movie mm. even though I'm I have film literary film intelligence, you know, like <laughs> you can also be that. You can also be smart about film and think this was a good movie. Yeah. That's my response to the haters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love this movie. I, I saw... Um, did you guys see it in the cinema or just at home? I saw it in the cinema, yeah. Yeah, yeah sort of at home. Super fun experience watching this in a cinema with, like, <laughs> with normies um, who mm. aren't as uh, literary film intelligent as AJ and I. <laughs> but they... Um, but yet, like, that every, every one of these sort of gross-out moments, there's, like, three or four in the film getting just, like, that visceral reaction. And, I mean, the the, the ending scene, which has now put uh, Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophie Alice Bexter, like, in the American charts Ending. for the first time ever, which is interesting because I, I, I didn't realise until... But like I listen to that song fairly regularly, and I have for the last twenty years. Um, <laughs> but that, like, I didn't realize While I dance around my my mansion. Yeah, but like, I didn't realize that that was one of those things that never made it to America because, like, people are like, "Oh my god, I didn't you know realize the song was so old," or like had never heard it before. But it's like, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Well, I mean, we're we're so familiar with it because in New Zealand we have kind of almost, especially in the early two thousands, we had like almost an even split mm. of pop culture, especially music from the UK and the US. Yeah. So we kind of like, I think, got the best of both worlds. Yeah, and thank God we did. Yeah. I don't want to live in a world without Robbie Williams. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, so Saltburn, uh, directed by Emerald Fennell, who uh, directed Promising and AJ Young has Woman. A crush on, I hear. I think she's quite charming, is all. All I'm saying, Richard. Um, but listen, Saltburn watched it. Uh, up until the last scene, I was like, "Yeah, this is great." Four out of five stars. Last scene happened. I loved. I gave this from five stars purely because it was like it had su- to me it had such a good cherry on the top of it that I was mm. like, "Fuck it, five stars." And in the the uh, month or two since I've seen it, um, my like I've you've been told that it's not cool to like. Well, I, that happened first, and then I started scrolling through TikToks that were like people are misinterpreting how smart this movie like there's the scene i saw a tweet where it was like the bit where at the end where oliver is like just typing gibberish on Mm. his on his document to to look like he's doing something and someone was like lol this is emerald writing the script basically Mm. and i was like very funny but it's like since then i've yeah i've i've read and heard analysis of it that just made i'm like this is such a rich interesting movie i think well of course you uh, love it's about class warfare but but okay but there is also a um there's an element of it that i think the uh so let's talk the galaxy brain meme which is increasingly becoming a useful tool for me to talk about (laughs) things i think so galaxy brain meme the small brain is like this movie's awesome the big brain is like this movie's hollow the bigger brain expanded brain is this movie's awesome and then like the, the god brain is like i recognize barry kogan so i couldn't watch the movie it didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> um, because, like, there's so much in this that is so disgusting and gross and interesting, but the one thing in terms of class warfare, or, or however you want to put it, that I thought was, it's not really class warfare, but, like, it's watching really it... It's really not. 
I know, I know. I'm not, I'm saying like that's the misinterpretation. Because watching this, there was a point where it, the, the reveal, there's a reveal three quarters of the way through the movie that Barry Cogan's Oliver is actually not like a dirt poor, um, uh, What's it misfortunate like, guy whose whose father was a drug addict and killed yeah. himself and yeah, yeah, yeah. And mother yeah he's actually like upper middle class and his parents love him right mm. and are just wonderful to him yeah and then of course if you've seen the movie you know he Oliver goes on to kill everyone and inherit salt the saltburn mansion and my first initial like trepidation was like so what it's not a movie about a it's not parasite you know it's, it's not a more hopeful parasite mm. where it's about a a poor person screwing over the rich people and taking their ownership which is what I think I would have written it's actually a movie about a a like upper middle class person who wants to be the upper crust of society who who yearns for it who desires for it and is and steps over everyone to get there and it's disgusting and gross and like despicable but that is a really unique take on the eat the rich narrative that has um permeated in recent years mm. because he it's wants not... to eat the rich just because they're tasty not for any like class warfare reasons well, because he he wants to be part of even though he's already more fortunate than others and i think that's really fascinating and i haven't haven't really seen that in in things before and there's been a lot of talk about um there's so many allusions in the film to like greek mythology and uh it just basically it heavily implies um a literary parallel to the minotaur story which the and the idea of the minotaur story is when you kill the minotaur you don't redistribute the wealth that the minotaur's hiding you become the king like you become the new minotaur essentially which is what the movie aims for i think i yeah. think this movie's great i think i thought about it so much since seeing it i've thought about um how just like breathtakingly erotic it is how how sexy this movie is i love that final scene it made me realize something about myself as like a beginner filmmaker is like how small I your love wang is no yeah that too <laughs> i i love i love nudity i love nudity from a non-sexual perspective sexual, i think nudity is so interesting to especially full frontal male nudity i just think it's like maybe because it's less commonly seen but also because like what a way to convey such human feelings not only of vulnerability and you know not trying to hide anything but in saltburn's case like decadence and self-indulgence mm. and it's very greek it's very biblical i think this movie is so much smarter than a certain corner of film twitter are, are giving it credit for and i i it, i've thought about it more and more since and every time i think about it i like it more wow sorry film twitter sorry edgelord saltburn is good we're kicking you off film twitter <laughs> no <laughs> i'm taking your film twitter privileges away mm. um i mean i I really, really enjoyed this film until the end. <laughs> <laughs> like the best part of the film for me and Richard and Jeremy's like, yeah, this ruined it for me. Yeah, f- full like, frontal male movie. It, like, <laughs> I, um, I, 
I just, I mean, I think it's crazy to me. I hadn't heard that critique that you were talking about of saying that, you know, like Emerald Fennel, like um, uh, Fennel um, typing, you know, this is her writing the film. I just think that's the the stupidest critique of this film because the one thing I would say about this film, it is the writing is whip crack. Like mm. it is just like Whoops. all the characters. Mel every yeah, everything Rosamund Pike says is oh, just like, amazing. oh my gosh, I want to just put that on a wall and quote she's, it. Like, she's in the supporting actress conversation now because of something. Yeah, seriously. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. it's just all these characters are so much. Like, while they're talking, it's so much fun to watch them and see what they do and stuff like that. And then I think as the cast gets winnowed down, and it's just at the end, it's just. Barry Keoghan's character and he's won I just all I was left with was this just great sense of emptiness but it was just weird I I just felt like a real um it's like the film is a tragedy and it's extremely tragic and yet I mean maybe I'm just too basic but like the ending it feels like a celebration and Mm. I just feel like the film does and maybe it's the same sort of thing as the the last film I was talking about with the Ballad of Songbird and Snakes that like the filmmaking itself and the vibe that you're left with at the end is so contrary to like what the story is that they're telling and I think that like it's just this unabashed like celebratory sense of joy and fun at the end and the transgressiveness of like him being naked. And it's like all anyone's talking about Mm. is like, Oh my gosh, him dancing naked. Lol. This is hilarious. And I'm like, if that's what this film leaves people with and the story you're describing AJ is like this disgusting, like look into how craven the desires that like, I mean, you know, to, to sort of, to, further your um your analysis of it that essentially capitalism pushes people not towards an appreciation of how much they have but just a continual psychotic drive to have more no matter how much they have mm-hmm. like that should leave you with some pause you know and it shouldn't take someone with a galaxy brain you know literary <laughs> film critic to be able to sense that that's what's actually going on behind this i feel like if that's the message she really wanted to tell perhaps it should have been more on the nose or at least somewhat telegraphed through the the, the feel of the film at the end um, that you should be left with this real sense of empty dread at who this person has been rather than kind of laughing and going, oh my gosh, how awesome is that? He's hilarious. Look, he's like, and I'm going to listen to that His song. His penis, <laughs> I'm going to listen to that song over and over again because lol. I just feel like- Well, it's a good song. I, I agree that that reading of the film is a very interesting reading. I just think that- in terms of actual filmmaking, that's not where she's actually directed the audience to go. But, so but that's, like, that's why I didn't like the ending because I felt like it was incredibly, it's a tragic, tragic story, but it didn't feel like it. But like basic audiences misinterpreting the meaning of a film, that goes back since to the beginning of film right like like fight like, like those stupid people at the great train robbery that were like oh he's shooting us <laughs> 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 um no i i think like it's a horror movie ending i i interpret the mm, film the not one. as a celebration but as like a holy shit and i don't think it's that much of a stretch to get there i think that that it has been it's much like fight club or a handful of other movies i think the wrong message might be being learned from it but i don't think that invalidates i certainly don't think it should have been more on the nose because i think this is a film that is 
above anything else, it is about uh, like decadence. It is about indulgence, right? And it is about these like sexy forbidden fruit that we all, or these desires we all have in ourselves. And I think that the ending is is horrific and that's why i like it so much because it's so Mm. bold and i understand you're saying the like filmmaking language is sort of celebratory but exactly sort of it's literally the most exuberant thing i've seen on screen totally but does that not add to the meaning for you that's what that adds to the meaning for me that that it's like from oliver's perspective the whole film is from oliver's perspective therefore at the end he has achieved god status it's like thanos and infinity and disgusting exactly it's like thanos and infinity War, <laughs> the greatest literary reference you can make yeah yeah that like the only way people can understand things these days but it's interesting um because it like emerald Fennell describes the film as a vampire film yeah, mm. yeah which is on the nose given what happens in the second most disturbing sex scene. <laughs> yeah uh anything else on i Slot love Room? it he, he's he's consuming the bodily fluids of the people he wants to be that is so mythological you know well, that he, is he gives so every person Greek. what they want yeah. yeah, but the the problem the problem with you saying that everything's so Greek is that in actual Greek stories there is actually a there is a um uh, a true north. There's always a true north of the Greek chorus that tells you what's wrong here, or like sh- shows you. And like usually in these sorts of stories, there is actually a pure character who we are supposed to go, oh shit, look how this affected that person, you know. Like, and I guess in this film. Felix is the pure character, like that, no, who, no who ends up dying through. There is, there is. I heard another reviewer say that, that there's literally no one to like in this movie, and I think that that is actually a problem. If you're telling a morality tale, you need to actually show the how this affects innocent people, how how this kind of terrible behavior actually affects people so that as a warning of like this is why it's tragic for people to behave this way, and I think that just showing just just showing this one vampire like upper middle class vampire consuming the souls of the extremely rich and then him celebrating about it doesn't actually portray any great tragedy like this is all occurring so far out of the realm of any of us that why should we actually take it seriously or care about it yeah i mean i think you get that with oliver throughout the whole thing until the Mm. twist that you're like oh he's the good guy getting wrapped up in this world and then it's like the the thing of like desiring the power of the The rich uh, the oppressor isn't the like the right thing and i mean jeremy you know you you despite having no one telling you this is bad you were able to pick that up by yourself i i respect you so much as a as an analyzer of film jeremy but i i agree with richard i think everything you're saying everything all your problems with the film i would i could argue for much longer than we have time for is entirely the message of the film i think the it's a film that intentionally allows you to sympathize with what you think is a sympathetic character only to be like he's just a snake he's just vermin trying to climb the ladder look at the state of the world look at the state of humanity i don't i think it's excellent i really Mm, do yeah and and hey none of my critiques are to say anything like that about i mean i loved i really really enjoyed this film and i think it's so beautifully made oh like everything about the cinematography holy the, the writing 
yeah, the, the writing, the performances, they're just all on such an A-level standard. And that's the reason why at the end I felt just a little bit hollow because I was like, oh, I just feel like I, I wanted it to kind of just ram, not ram at home because that would be inelegant, but I just thought it could actually... I don't know. It, this is just my personal um, reaction to it, and it's not invalidating the film or saying totally. that it's not yeah. it's not good. I, I think it's a very, very well-made film. There's a reason. I think beyond the gross-out factor, there is still a reason why this movie is is dominating conversation. I think that there are plenty of films that go for gross-out factor and do disgusting, transgressive things mm, like Ted. that do not get... that that do not end up being talked about and kind of venerated like this and the fact that it is i think speaks to what's behind all the shock Mm. stuff Mm. and it's interesting your main uh, other last thing i'll say on saltburn your main criticism there uh jeremy uh could also be applied to the last film left that all three of us have seen so let's leave that tease there and continue forward we could be going with that it's funny we've having now taken a break for a week and come back we have lost all sense of urgency with this podcast (laughs) Uh, so i still i just want to point out again how funny it is that no one saw wish um not even just inside this podcast but outside as well again i don't know a single Mm. person that's seen it uh their 100th anniversary film like so seriously funny. wow true uh, yeah i saw a wow. thing that was like you know like you, you guys you you proud of yourselves there's a hundred year old company at home crying because nobody <laughs> saw their movie and what's what's absolutely insane about that as well is that the thing the the film that disney got like you know in the headlines for this year on their 100th anniversary was not the film they actually released but it was the remake of their very first animated film that got absolutely pilloried and like they basically were forced to go back and like redesign a whole bunch of the characters just to try and like quell some of the concerns about it quarter quell the concerns about it wow Hunger Games. Uh, Wonka, yeah, only I Hunger saw. Hunger Games. <laughs> uh, only I saw. Wonka was one that I was uh, very sort of uh, apprehensive about, but like the fact that it's Paul King who directed the Paddington films was like, ah, okay, maybe it'll be good. It was one of the films that we've known for a while. It was a musical, but that was kept out of the marketing. Um, and it's just a freaking delightful film, you guys. Like, so it's what you would want it to be based on the director of Paddington. It's so much fun. It's so lovely. I do still think that Timothy Chalamet was a bit miscast. It's this weird thing where it's like, he's a good actor and it is a good performance. It's just wrong for this character, I think. Um, right. But yeah, he, he, he's, he's good in the film. Just the, what you saw in the trailer of the like, nope, scratch that reverse and just lacking that whimsy um is, is still there but it, it, it's a it's a delightful film with some catchy little songs and yeah it's it's i liked it so much more than i thought i would i think i'll see this eventually somewhere mm. yeah that's no, fun uh godzilla minus one one of the big surprises of the year uh aj and i've done a podcast about it already but do you just want to say f- fucking rocks it's great fun Go go! Put every American action blockbuster to shame by watching Godzilla minus mm. one. Um, another export out of Japan that um, was one of my most anticipated for the year is um, Hi- what was going to be Hayao Miyazaki's last film, but he's since come out of retirement again and is now <laughs> apparently working on another film. Uh, it was called How Do We Knew It as How Do You Live for a Long Time, but it was called The Boy and the Heron in uh, English markets. 
and yeah, saw this at the cinema recently. I, 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 I've never been pretentious about subs versus dubs, but like I just I'd heard such good things about the dub and like Robert Pattinson's performance as the heron that I really wanted to see the dub, and it was like it was playing so much less for some reason. Um, but I've finally got to a screening of it um, last week, and yeah, thought it was great. Some of some of his best animation. There's like scenes of the mm. the boy running through. Uh, mm. through fire and it's like crazy animation haven't seen anything like it before um, and it's it's very much like a legacy film I thought um, it's it's very much about past the torch and there's all this stuff about like Mark Hamill's character and the dub Mark Hamill's character is sort of like the creator of this world and it's very much about like you need to take over the storytelling of this world but then like right, he doesn't yeah. and because there's there's this whole thing about like Miyazaki has always struggled with that it's like his son entering Gora Miyazaki entering the same um uh profession as his dad and just like not being as good like Tales from Earthsea it's like his first maybe his first one as a solo director and apparently Hayao Miyazaki walked out of the premiere because he was so disappointed and it's often considered the worst Studio Ghibli film and they ended up making a film together from up on Poppy Hill which is quite nice um but the it was sort of advertised as like this is his final farewell to his grandson to Goro's um son to be like almost sort of the subtext being like I wasn't a great father Please don't suck as much as my son did. <laughs> yeah but like I was I wasn't a great father to your dad but you know I, I want to leave my legacy for my grandkid mm. um I I saw this in the cinema I also saw the dub I I think it's interesting you heard good things about the dub Richard I heard quite poor things I heard basically uh Robert Panson is insane as the heron and unrecognizable vocally, yeah. basically, which is true, which is so funny because it, it's so different from what you know he sounds like that it, it breaches into like what's the point territory, mm. like what's the point in casting. <laughs> well, we don't, we don't say I've heard good things. I just wanted to hear Robert Pattinson. <laughs> yeah, whereas like I heard like every every other like Christian Bale in this you know a flat line performance mm. for a lot, a lot of it which is interesting because um, you- there there's a little bit of like why would you get christian bale but the, in the original dub that character is played by the same actor who played Hal in Hal's movie Castle, so that's why they got ah, Christian Bale. Ah, right, right. Jeremy, I don't know if you've seen any marketing for this, but Robert Pattinson in this film sounds like this the whole time. Your mother. <laughs> oh he, he's doing a Willem Dafoe impression. And basically. Willem Dafoe's also in the movie. He, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he committed to the bit a bit strong. A bit strong. Um, I, I liked it. I think, for me, like, there is... It's like A tier Miyazaki, mm. but it's not S tier yeah, Miyazaki yeah. for me. And I guess I am surprised you would come out of retirement for anything less than an S tier film. Um, but my other people, I'm sure, enjoy it more than I did. I would say my main criticism with this film is. I don't think the heron is relevant enough to the plot to get a spot in the title. <laughs> I, I like like or everything I, I, I that prefer, happens I in this the movie. Title, yeah. 
How do you live? How yeah. unlike yeah. you to complain about titles, Adrian. <laughs> it's just it makes it sound like it's a story about like two unlikely friends who join forces together to become better or, or mm. whatever. But the heron is not like a plot hinging character. He's just there. He's just along for the ride. Whereas the and boy, he's is not even like, a heron. He's a gross little freak. Yeah, yeah. But what's what's the what's the actual title in Japanese? Uh, like the, the tr- transliteration of it. Well, how do you live? Yeah, well, it originally was. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I don't blame Western marketers for changing it to The Boy and the Heron for an animated film. I agree. Like, who's going to take their kid to How Do You Live? Yeah, I agree. Um, It has, you know, classic Miyazaki cute little freaks in it. They go, they essentially, this is... Uh, I wouldn't say massive spoilers for the film, but sort of just a direction to where it goes, is that they essentially go to this dimension where there are creatures running around that are like, they then transcend and become the souls of newborn humans, right? So you meet like, sort of like the Pixar's soul movie, mm. like, and they are these cute little, they look like the things from uh, Princess Mononoke, these cute little things that just like potter around the world. It's it's very Miyazaki-ian, um, and that's cool. I, I think... Again, with a lot of again, a lot of Miyazaki films do this to me. I kind of lost what was happening by mm. the last half. I didn't really understand what was going on for maybe the last act of the film as well as I understood the first act of the film. But it's great. Go see it. It's my first Miyazaki in cinemas, mm. which was cool. So yeah, I, I I was so interesting that like in the states as well, uh, and sorry in Japan they that that original poster that's like sort of the crudely drawn, well not crudely drawn, but like the sketch of the heron that that was the only thing released from the film there was no trailer no other posters it was just like there's a new Miyazaki film here's a rough sketch of one of the characters and it became Mm. you know one of the (laughs) highest grossing um, Japanese films of all time Mm, nice i would also say i felt it was a little derivative of spirited away it it is a little bit um I was talking to a friend of mine that it's like, you know how like Coco was like a greatest hits of all the Pixar stuff? It's a little bit like that where it's like, he's doing the greatest hits. Yeah. Which is an inherently bad. For me, S-tier, S-tier Miyazaki is spirited away, Kiki's delivery service, uh, my neighbor Totoro, and personally, I know I'm alone on this, but Porco Rosso is my favorite Miyazaki film. Mm. And those films are all staggeringly different from Mm. each other. Whereas, like, if I'm going to choose between the two Miyazaki films where a young person is um, spirited away to another dimension where they learn about shit, it's clearly Spirited Away. It's one of the greatest films of all time, I think, Spirited (laughs) Away. Uh, the next film we have to talk about, guys, is one that always... It's the type of film that appears on these spreadsheets we do for our most disappointing or, or look back at the at the previous year. And it's one of these films that gets ad, added because I think Richard is being funny. And then the motherfucker goes and watches the film. And so now we have to talk about <laughs> migration. Okay, so for the record... It's actually real good. <laughs> <laughs> this was on the most anticipated list. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't just add this for this because it was like, there's a, a a film coming out that's directed by the guy who made Ernest and Celestine, which is like an Oscar-nominated film and written by Mike White, who's, you know, having a moment with the White Lotus. Um, and then, I yeah, I happened to watch Migration. Sorry about it. It's not that good. It's just a, <laughs> it's a fine family film about ducks. And I'm not going to apologize like, for that, AJ. It's like how Noah Baumbach wrote Madagascar 3. Yeah. 
<laughs> what? Yeah. yeah, to pay for his divorce. Um, but what one one uh, other film that I, I only I saw another animated film, Chicken Run: Dawn of the Nugget, mm. which was so it's it's not bad, but it's one of those things that like like maybe you said about uh, Indiana Jones that you your main takeaway from it was like fuck Spielberg's a good director. Yeah. Watching Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, I was like, fuck Chicken Run is a good movie. This, <laughs> like, the first one's so fucking good, man. Like, this mm-hmm. one's pretty good. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, I would recommend it. And it's a, it's not on the same level as the first one, first one but it's a worthy 20 years later sequel. Um, mm. But first one's great, man. Every time they play clips from it, like, when you think that she's like cut off Ginger's head and then she was holding the rope and then, oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. I forgot about how good chicken run is. <laughs> uh, there's also a scene at the end where like all the chickens are together and one of them is in the background is actually Feathers McGraw from um, The Wrong Trousers. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and then also another one that it was like one of my most anticipated that I just watched in my before we did this is the killer the new i can't David believe Fitcher i film. didn't watch the killer man this is crazy well, i should was, have seen the killer but. i really wanted to see it in cinemas and then it was just like you know it was a limited netflix release so it was hard to get to and then finally watched it it's um it's another one of these films that like i think you just have to accept how funny it is <laughs> like it's one of these films that like if you you could watch this and be like he's not a very good hitman or like like because the the first like 20 minutes of the film is kind of like nothing happens he like just describes how mundane the job is and like he's set up in this um uh this like uh, this abandoned we work office and is going through like how meticulous the job is and like you know there's no chance to get anything wrong you just have you have to do everything by the numbers and a lot of the job is really just waiting and assembling and cleaning and then he's taking out this hit and he fucks it up and shoots the wrong person and then the whole film is like going through and like all the people that were wronged by him fucking it up he's like now going and taking them all out and it's like done in little like um that sounds great i want to watch this movie now that someone's told me what it's about yeah (laughs) it's um and it's like it is very funny but it's also like um the thing i I was reading a thing about how like because there's like a bit in the film where he's waiting and he's just eating mcdonald's and it's like you know not not always eating from a you know an unmarked bag it's like there's a lot of um uh, there's a lot about like commercialization and and like the film is kind very of Fincher. about yeah exactly very Fincher and it's but it's a lot about like how mundane a lot of these things are and um yeah it's a good movie it's it's like a, it's a it's a very like 90s Fincher kind of movie it's a it's a right. return to the sort of um you know what people um like liked uh, about those early sort of films um also in uh around the sort of end of year as we're getting into like oscar season um kills the flower moon is one of the big uh oscar Mm -hmm. contenders this year but i believe jeremy has something he would like to say about uh priscilla (laughs) 
We just got an emergency. <laughs> you know that, Richard? <laughs> an emergency message to our group chat being like, wait, can we talk about Priscilla? Which I think is so adorable that like you value the sanctity of the like performance that is the podcast so much that you couldn't just wait for Richard to finish and be like, oh, off pod, are we just talk- are we going to talk about Priscilla? <laughs> yeah. Instead, completely anyway, through my flow. <laughs> Jeremy, would you like to talk about Priscilla, a movie you've seen? Half of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, can can I just ask you don't spoil it too much? Because I do want to see Priscilla. I won't spoil it too much. <laughs> Believe me, I won't spoil it too much. Because I can't spoil it. Because Lord knows I saw half an hour of it. Um, I just have some comments about Priscilla. I really, really wanted to be gripped and, like, drawn along into this movie. But, man, Jacob Elordi is just not Elvis. <laughs> I've heard... <laughs> the exact opposite dude i've heard nothing but praise i've heard he literally is elvis (laughs) i've heard people are actually looking back at old pictures of elvis and changing it so that it's jacob (laughs) (laughs) and this is the thing i had heard exactly the same thing that you had and so i went in being like oh man i'm really excited about this performance i'm just you know like and the fact that it's this sort of you know uh, more sort of honest look at the relationship between him and Priscilla and kind of the necessarily creepy elements of how he approached her and kind of mm. brought her to live with him when she was still a teenager and kind of cut her off from her family and all this sort of stuff. And man, did this movie just like take its bloody time to do anything of interest at all. And um, well, it probably happened after the half hour yeah. mark. <laughs> yeah, man, no. in the 30 minutes I watched, it really struggled to progress and get like, forward, go forward. The thing is that the, the 30 minutes you watch, just it's just solely basically him and Priscilla like with each other or her talking to her family about how much she misses him when, mm. when they have a time apart. Jacob Elordi just exists now. He is a he is a face. He is a person who is just so like of this moment that I just I, I couldn't see him. It was like you know it was you with bloody um, Paul Dano. Yeah, Paul Dano. Like you know, not that you've seen that movie, but um, I barely saw Priscilla. But yeah, you know, not that I, you've seen this one. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. But it's just and also, can I just say, opening titles wide Latin. Sophia Coppola, what is behind that choice? You use wide Latin in, as the font choice of your movie? Listen. Oh, just Well, poor shocking, things shocking. used the uh, Men in Black font. What? Poor Things <laughs> uses the Men in Black font. In the Amazing. Discord this week, in between when we stopped recording and picked it up this like today, a week later, um, I got a bit of flack in the Discord because people were like, AJ's talking a lot of shit about The Flash when he hasn't actually seen it, right? Oh, and I, look, I I'm took open. That, let, let, me, let me finish. I took that on board. And I was like, all right, I'll watch The Flash but before we record again. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I didn't get a chance to. What did you watch instead? What did I, I watched the first two episodes of Ted. Um, you said you only watched one. <laughs> I, I watched another parter. one yeah. after after you um, after I told you that. Um, I just need to say this has got to be worse, right? Worse than not watching a movie and wanting to talk about it is watching half an hour of it and specifically complaining about the pacing. Staggering, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I I can I can stand for this be, be going uncall not called out on the podcast. I think no, the reason to- I the reason I only watched half an hour was not because I got interrupted. I literally just turned it off. It was because, because it was of the font choice, AJ. So, this is the font choice, AJ. No, no, like, all right. 
Yeah, I just genuinely just was not interested anymore. And I was like, sorry, you don't deserve any more of my time. Jeremy, I'm calling it out only because if I don't do it, someone will, someone else will. Someone will with more venom. Yeah. Bring it on, Discord. Bring it on. I'm here for I it. I fucking hate you guys, Discord. <laughs> so, mentioned it briefly uh, just before, but you kills the Flower Moon. Mm. One of the the big art housey releases of the year, the new film from Martin Scorsese. Uh, it's pretty good, I thought. All three of us have seen it as well, which mm. is, is unique. And what I said before with um, the same criticism could be applied to Saltburn, from Saltburn, I mean, this is a movie where the main character fairly early on is revealed to just straight up be one of the bad guys. Yeah. And that's an interesting maneuver because the marketing for this film kind of gave me a different idea of who, um, what's the character's name? Leonardo DiCaprio. Ernest Ernest Burkhart was in the story. And I think it's interesting to focus on him as the hero or the main character, at least, because the marketing for this and one the poster where they're, he's like um, hugging, um, what was her name? What's the Lily Gladstone. Name? Lily Gladstone. It made it look like this is like a love story. And I was kind of hoping we'd get for the a white rear, savior. You not really, a white, really wanted that not white a, savior not narrative? A, no, I didn't actually, Jeremy, <laughs> but I was like. Like if it's not that I I would critique Scorsese for it, but something that uh, often disconnects me with Scorsese films is like I've just got to do a bit of like mental gymnastics to watch a movie where the main character is a bad guy, and that's probably ninety percent of Scorsese's films, right? Mm. Um, and and in this, I was kind of hoping for a more sympathetic character, but. Boy, is it not the case. I think um, I think it's still a great movie, especially because the, the, and spoilers for Killers of the Flower Moon, the character arc basically ends with like, it is not enough to apologize. It is not enough to say you regret it. It's like, you actually have to like, sacrifice all of who you are to make things better and at the final hurdle even after admitting to everything even after um you know telling um his wife everything's true he's still not able to stop lying to her because the last thing she asks him is like what was in the the pills you were giving me and he says he doesn't know and i loved that i thought that was that was its message is like he's still after all this he still doesn't have the courage to be 100 percent honest with her and it you know sinks the, the rest of his life post story you know mm. um so i thought that was really cool i think the performance is a great in it i thought robert de niro is so Mm. fun fun to watch it at um despite how evil he is and i i like that it's like a a true wolf in sheep's clothing you know yeah. like he's yeah he's he's well, just such the fact a, that he like i mean it's it's amazing that it's based it is based in reality right and mm. the fact that he knows their language he you know like yeah it's like living with them knows their language mm. and, and just i guess the true horror of someone who like is living in their culture or like living at least adjacent to their culture and like, you know, making a really good show of understanding who they are as people. And yet the just understanding doesn't actually mean that he empathizes with them or totally. identifies at all with them mm. as human beings. He just sees them as a different race and, it's, and, and it's people disgusting. who can be, it's, yeah, yeah, it's pure evil. And I think, um, I think the trailer, the first trailer for this movie 
is probably my favorite thing I've seen for the movie. Sadly, I think I liked it more than the actual movie. <laughs> just where it's where because well, it was actually edited to a watchable length. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I absolutely love the trailer for this where where it's it's like DiCaprio's reading this like parable about the the world he's moved in, and he and he says like, "Can you find the wolves in Can this you picture?" Find and then the wolves such a good line in this such a good picture. And then it repeats it again at the end with the whole like cast of of white characters like looking at the camera, like can you find the wolf in this picture? It it captivated me. It, it pulled me into the film. And it's not that the actual film isn't that. It's just a bit more satisfying to see it wrapped up in trailer form. I think. But <laughs> yeah, truly a wolf in the picture, right? Robert mm. Robert uh, De Niro's character. And um, yeah. What do you guys think of um, Brendan Fraser in this film? Good People are like she needs to give back his Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I've I'm of two minds about it. Part of me is like, what the hell is is Brendan <laughs> Fraser doing in the like with his performance? But then another part of me is like, well, if you're getting Brendan Fraser, it could just be mm. anyone. But you got mm. Brendan Fraser, so you may as well make it a memorable character, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also one of those things that I think the character itself is performing in the moment as well, like mm, is being totally. over the top. But also, I, I will say on Kills the Flower Moon that um, this sort of happened to me with The Irishman as well, is that like a film I didn't really... It didn't really click for me, or like I didn't really like it that much until like the last... 90 seconds of the film um and the irishman like the shot of the door closing on him really just solidifying the like you know was this all worth it like look at where look at where this life has gotten you and in um kills the flower moon it ends with this like this radio show which for a brief moment i was like is that jack white what the, what the hell is he doing in this film um and then man scorsese playing a radio announcer addresses the and you know the the at the end of a lot of based on true story films when it's like they went on to do this and then they're still known today and like um instead of just coming up as text it's like man scorsese just tells the audience this and i i think man scorsese is actually a pretty good actor like i Uh, like his his delivery of that and mentioning that her obituary years later didn't mention the murders being like the final line of the film i was like that it really hit home and it made the whole film click in a different way i thought have you seen shark tale yeah man (laughs) he's in that it's so funny that like there's a wikipedia page or at least there was at one point for like um robert de niro man scorsese collaborations and it says like they are often considered some of the greatest movies ever made but it's like they are both in shark tale (laughs) (laughs) along with the guy that plays christopher from the sopranos and someone asked him once did you enjoy being in shark tale and he said no (laughs) (laughs) one thing i love one thing about this film that i really loved is just it's it's a bit counter to what i'm then going to go on and say about it but like actually just Martin Scorsese is one of uh, one of, if not the best director in terms of creating a believable reality. Mm. Like you know, like it genuinely just felt like I was in a time, you know, in a place and time that I do not know anything about, um, other than sort of just you know vague historical references mm. and 
the people, the village, the you know, the the what was going on in the town. Like it was just so fully realized and just it felt like a documentary that was in a real place. Um, yeah. but like more beautifully filmed. Um mm. and and you know, things more uh heightened slightly. But then I would say that the problem with Martin Scorsese is that he does that so well that he wants to he wants you to spend a lot of time in those places and a lot of time with these characters while they do things that aren't necessarily like I just felt like this this movie really could have done with like a 2 hour edit you know mm. like it, it's a shame to do that because I think the filmmaking that's involved in the 3 and what 3 and 3 quarter hours in is amazing but it's just too much like seriously and especially when you're telling such a horrendous story as a viewer it's very difficult to want to spend time with people who are doing this sort of thing right like and just that's just just a a, a media consumer kind of point is i'm like there's not really that many people in this that i actually like I, I also I know where this is going. Like there's nowhere good that any of this is going. I mean, there's no heroic character. Like I compared it in my mind to Schindler's List. Right? You've got like yes, all of this horrendous stuff is going on, and all around, like the film is an excellent record of the brutality and evil that was wrought during the Second World War, and it was kind of unflinching from showing you that. But at the same time, it was based around a story where there was some hope like you know there was there were some people who were who were shining in the midst of the worst of humanity and i mean look you know this is based on a true story right so you don't invent true stories or you don't invent false characters to give people false hope necessarily but in terms of a film that i want to a story that i want to spend three and three quarter hours inside of it's a, oh, I it's think a hard story to spend that much time in there's a good argument that Lily Gladstone should have been the protagonist, or at least like one hundred percent, one hundred percent, yeah, yeah. And and then I think the story would have been at least much more sympathetic. But yeah. I I do think that Martin Scorsese is doing a good job at like you could you could say like an unflinching look totally. at kind of what Americans did, you know what what you know um, settler colonist Americans did, the yeah wolves. yeah. Like I mean it. It's a story that people should know, you know, because I think it has huge implications for the way that Americans look at now and look mm. at, you know, what how what the relationship between white Americans and Native Americans or indigenous indigenous Americans should be. Mm. Um but it is also really interesting, like as a New Zealander watching this film, kind of being like, Oh, this is effing awful. But like, uh <laughs> like, We do this shit all the time. <laughs> well pretty much yeah but we will not say the f word that is we're in new zealand we're not allowed to say the f word <laughs> uh so another film that's a big um well lily big, Gad- big gladstone's kind of uh main competitor for best actress uh mm. is emma stone in poor things the new yorgos lanthimos film do you uh, think they'll be nominated in the same category i'd put lily gladstone in a supporting actress oh yeah maybe she's supporting yeah yeah, I think you're right. Mm. Um, yeah, say things about it, AJ. Say what kind of things? Could you describe sort of like a status of the things you'd like me to say about the Good movie? things. Very rich. Um... Yeah, it's, give us some of your rich... Uh... <laughs> things. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, poor things. The new Yorgos, Yorgos Lanthimos movie. I was very excited for it because I think it it visually looks insane. It's a very crazy looking movie. Um, I thought that uh, it it wasn't exactly like the gripping character drama I was hoping it would be, but I'm still able to appreciate like what I saw, you know, the, mm. the movie I saw and, and meet it on its own terms instead of what I expected it to be. I think it's still really good. It's essentially Jeremy. I feel like it's a, um, Jeremy hasn't seen it, so that's why I addressed him directly. Mm. It's essentially a story that that I think asks, what if a woman was just just popped into existence from nowhere and then was left to figure out the world for herself like what things surely men think would of- be respectful of that <laughs> like what things would she learn about the world what things which wouldn't seem weird to her seem crazy to us uh, and it's it's that for however long so the, the fifth is. element it's Born better than the fifth though. element, but <laughs> it's 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 like a it's like a weaponized "born sexy yesterday" trope where that's the point, like right? Mm, it's yeah. like exploring that, and it's. I will say this: if if people haven't seen it, it is uh, f- far more um, sexually not necessarily explicit, though it is pretty explicit. It's very like, explicit. The the amount of sex in this movie staggered me. Uh, every every five minutes, it feels like there's some kind of depraved action going on. And I think one fun comparison to something like Saltburn is they're both movies about like someone who's um, sort of aiming to inherit a place uh, that has alarming amounts of nudity from an a-lister in it (laughs) i think because emma stone gets you know full frontal nude in this there's loads of um dead bodies that you just see fully fully nude i don't know why i'm going into this i think it's Mm, cool that um i think it's cool that nudity in general is being destigmatized in movies and like i feel like 20 years ago if an actress did not even 20 probably like 10 years ago Mm. if an actress did a nude scene it becomes like holy shit like she must be so desperate i feel sadly as well kate winslet peed on camera that's in like true. two thousand in the early two thousands, Saoirse that, Ronan took a shit on camera. Um, that's this is all go- great. Francis McDormand took a shit on camera and won an and, Oscar for it. And, let me, and, let me and, just reach into the files on my computer, and I can tell you. To- <laughs> and what I'm what I'm saying is, it's like between this and a few other examples, I think Emma Stone and the, even the favorite Yorgos Lanthimos's previous mm. movie. I think it's cool that like nudity has moved from the from the realm of like now if you're a, an A-list actress don't do this to like shut the fuck up who cares it's about the art it's about the the movie itself and some movies are enhanced by this sort of thing to be clear i think this is a good thing i just think it's worth it's worth talking about and it's kind of interesting to me um but yeah uh mark ruffalo is hilarious and great in this movie i don't necessarily want to spoil it completely but i did kind of think the very ending was like could have been like the chess pieces kind well, of it's just like it, and, and here's a new villain to take down yeah, in, in the last five minutes of the film that's my main problem with it mm. yeah um though i think there is a way that you could tinker things to make it a little bit more satisfying mm. um richard you didn't love this I, I yeah I, I didn't love it i um yeah i don't know maybe i was just expecting more but one of my big issues was kind of the pacing as well that it's like it takes so long to get going 
um this film and then it has like a quite a good second act and then yeah the ending is just like introducing new elements to wrap up immediately um yeah and yeah there's just just a few sort of strange things like it's one of those things that like uh, it's annoying to not love it because it's like it's the high art film of the year and so it's like i get it i get why everyone liked it i don't not love it because i didn't get it um and i want to make that clear i'm just as smart as the rest of you (laughs) i just if any of you even suggest that i'm not as smart as the rest of film twitter i will blow a gasket (laughs) (laughs) um so we'll I talk guess, about this more in our Oscars yeah, I'm sure we will, yeah. episode. I'm sure. Um, the last thing we have here is that uh, yeah, the Wes Anderson did a bunch of Roald Dahl short stories. Um, Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar being one of them. AJ, you watched them? So this, my main tag, I, I really like The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar and all the, the I think there's three others. Um, and it's cool. They're sort of like, it's very, it's a very Wes Anderson-y idea, but it's like the whole, each of these four short stories are done to look like, um they're filmed on a stage so you see like the wall moving and stuff behind Mm. it and you know um across the four short stories they share the same handful of actors which is really interesting i think this should have been the wonderful world of henry sugar and other stories which is what the the yeah yeah. uh, anthology book it's based off and i think they should have been released as an anthology movie much like the french dispatch was because i think by separating it's so the wonderful world of uh, wonderful story of Henry Sugar it take is like maybe fifty minutes long, and the other three are like twenty minutes long, uh, and they're all they're all great. I just think they should have been one package, um, mm. but they're fun. They're good. I I I have really nice memories of the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. I remember my teacher reading it to us when I was in year eight. And to find out it was being made was really interesting to me because I think it's such a well-written story. Um, Roald Dahl is played by Ray Fiennes in it. And he like yeah. has interstitial moments where he comes and he's like, he's, you know, he lives in a caravan and looks very grumpy and is sort of like annoyed to, has this annoyed demeanor <laughs> to the way he's telling the story. Um, it's it's really just like crunchy acting, you know, yeah, yeah. fun performances to watch. Um I really liked it. I, th- I think it was a good film, good good series of short films. Nice. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the year. Uh, is mm. there anything? Is there any other films that anyone wants to mention briefly? Now, nah, uh, well, in we've mind, got a I few here. Briefly. So, did you want to talk about Air, or did you already talk already about, about Air? Um, Blackberry. Did we already talk already about Blackberry? About it, That's why I skipped uh, it. Uh, I, I have one that I would like to talk about, which. It's the first it's thirty quite... minutes of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it, it was it was originally filmed as a film, and then it got like broken up into a limited series. Um, All the light we cannot see on Netflix. Um, just to say, this is one of the best books I've ever read, and mm. it is barring none. And I include my comments about Aragon in the um in the uh, in credits scene from last pod mm. barring none the worst transfer from written <laughs> material to wow. a filmed product i have ever seen in my life it was so disappointing in almost every way the performances were ho- horribly melodramatic mark ruffalo in this is just 
Like you would not think that he was an actor. Like he's <laughs> he's American trying to play French by way of the, all the French people have English accents in this film for some reason. Mm. Um, it ju- it's just so bad and. I just had to say it because I was so excited for this when they announced it was going to be a movie and then they said, oh, it's going to be a limited series on Netflix. I was like, oh, that's even better. Like, more time in this world. Mm. And no, it is just atrocious. So that's your most disappointing of the year, would you say? Oh, Actually, though, it really is. (laughs) A rare misstep from um, Sean Levy there. (laughs) Richard, do you have a most disappointing of the year? Oh, that's a good question. Uh... Mine's Mission Impossible, as I said. I think earlier in this episode, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, mine would have to be strays. <laughs> not seeing the penis flying through the year. Um, I would briefly like to mention a few films. Uh, my favorite film of the year is is a very very independent um festival darling called How to Have Sex. It's definitely this year's answer to After Sun, which was my favorite movie of 2022. Um, it's harrowing, but it's so wonderfully made. It is so naturally acted. The story it tells is so beautiful and tragic. Really loved it. The title gives the wrong message. I don't think it should be called How to Have Sex. I'll <laughs> say that. I think that that sends a strange message about what the film is. Um, I When I got COVID, I checked out No One Will Save You on Netflix, which I loved. It's such a good um, alien movie. And to I didn't know this till watching it. So to give you guys the, the thing that hooked me, um, it is a film which uh, more or less the point is that no one says anything. It's got no dialogue in it, which is such an interesting gimmick to watch in feature length, Mm. a feature length version of instead of just a short film. If you like things like signs or, um, nope, it's a little bit nopey. Uh, this is like a Netflix budget version. It was like a Hulu film or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is great. I, I think both of you would would quite like it. I think the the mm. alien designs in it are really unique, and the no dialogue thing is used uh, to create tension. So, like to give you an example, um, there's sort of this the one of the character actors. It's got Caitlin Dever. as 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 the main character and you know the whole film that she did something that has isolated her from her small town community right we don't know what it is but we know that no one in the town likes her and she's going to tell the she's going to the police station to tell them that she's been having home intruders basically and you and you're watching this being like how is no one going to speak in this moment like it is very clear what's happening how is this going to be conveyed without dialogue she walks into the police station the first thing she sees is a cop and a and a, a elder an older woman who know her and and there's tension rising and you're like how are they going to do this she goes to open her mouth to say something and the older woman spits in her face and that and then no one says anything. you know what i mean so mm. like the not only does it have no dialogue there is narrative tension built around how are they going to get out oh, of no, this they're gonna, they're gonna the Oh, no, they're going to break the streak. Yeah. Um, yeah. Similar film that I'd, I'd want to mention that I saw, a um, film called mm-hmm. Monolith, which is, uh, it's like an indie-Australian sort of thing. It uh, stars this cool. actress, Lily Sullivan, who was in um, Evil Dead Rise. She's, like, the, the main character yeah, yeah. in it. And um, she's so cool, man. She's she's great. She, like, had, had a great interview with her and Alyssa Sutherland. But um, it's about a this, like, disgraced 
journalist or podcaster who's like moved back into a parents home they're not there and she's the only actress that appears on screen um and she's doing this podcast about um and interviewing people about these like strange bricks these like black bricks mm. that um have just shown up in random places oh, in people's lives great this yeah it's so good it's, it's fun yeah yeah um i also uh watched theater camp um a movie that i had my eye on since i edited like the the i think it premiered at khan or sundance and i edited a letterbox video about it and i i really like um oh, what's this fucking name jimmy ben platt jimmy tatro who's oh, in yeah. american vandal he's a main character in this ben platt i wasn't necessarily excited he's pretty good in the film um I watched this because I kind of had told myself it was the theater kid school of rock. It's not really. And Jeremy, yeah, you wouldn't shut up about it being I was surprised theater kid school you, of rock. I was surprised you didn't watch it, Jeremy, but the, I think you might like it because my problem with it was there's no in, if you're not a theater kid, it's very like, <laughs> it's very like even like someone like Jimmy Tatro or AO Ediberry are in it and they play outsiders but it's they're not the main characters and yeah, yeah, yeah. ultimately like the jokes the 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 stuff that's being made fun of in the film is like ah oh, this would be so good if it was mixed with an audience surrogate like it'd be so good if there was something more um tangential or uh not tangential but like tactile holding the story together but it just AJ have you ever watched Schmigadoon? No, never heard of it. Right, so exactly. So Schmigadoon is essentially like a, a TV, sounds like you made up TV. made up the word on the spot. <laughs> yeah. It's an it's an Apple TV yeah. series that is honestly like one of my favorite things that I've watched in the last five years. It's so good. Hey Jeremy, it's uh, Richard in the edit booth again. So sorry, uh, they've actually cancelled Schmigadoon since we recorded this. So uh, there you go. Um, it's Keegan Michael Key and um, oh, I cannot remember her name from SNL. Um, oh, Cecily Strong from um, SNL, and like this massive cast of like all of these crossover musical theater to like film and television, including like um, uh, uh, Aaron Tveit, um and Ariana um, Debose. Yes, Ariana DeBose. Like, it's just it's stacked. Alan it's absolutely stacked with all of these um, incredible, incredible musical theater performers. Anyway, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But I genuinely, as someone who loves musical theater and knows all of the references they're riffing off of for the whole season, I was just like, how on earth would anyone who doesn't <laughs> love musical theater as much as me ever get into this show? Like, because my enjoyment of the show is entirely based on how well they are sending up all of these musicals that I know and love. Mm. Mm. theater camp's also a mockumentary which i was like this doesn't need to be a mockumentary i think it kind of um made it gave it a weird a weird angle ao ediberry in it is essentially jack black in school of rock like she lied on her resume and is now having to teach theater and again it's like is this not who you center as mm. the protagonist i don't know um i also watched flora and son a film i was looking forward to directed by john carney who directed one of my oh. favorite movies of all time begin again um i love that movie i love sing street i'm so so on once which is generally considered his masterpiece which mm. i just didn't get into when i saw it flora and son pretty disappointed by gave me almost nothing it's not as musically interesting as his mm. other films um i think joseph gordon levitt is kind of 
sticks out as being like by far the most famous person in the film and it's kind of like a long distance love story between him and the main woman and i kind of didn't buy it um a lot of people love flora and son i think it's it's pretty unremarkable Uh, and the last one i wanted to talk about is a film that is so close to being something i could see myself making in one dollar genre or attempting to make but it has one fundamental thing i didn't like in it it's called late night with the devil it stars david desmelchin as like a 1970s late night talk show host um of a of a late night show that is dwindling in numbers so he uh experiments with the form to try get more viewers and it's you're essentially watching the last ever episode of the show where they brought in an a like girl that is believed to be possessed by the devil and so Mm. uh it's it's such a good concept and if for one dollar genre the the winning genre was like late night show this is what i imagine i would go (laughs) for um my problem with it is it's such it's it looks like the 70s right it's so authentic but they clearly and this feels like something they got so far through the script and we're just like fuck we've just got to do this is that every time um, so it, it opens with like a documentary, like this is the last episode that aired live that anyone mm. that anyone ever saw, you know. So I forgave it. I was like, all right, give me a documentary introduction to it so that I have context. Fine, but then every time there's an ad break in the in the fictional show, it goes black and white and is like an objective camera like watching Mm. the characters and so much plot is relayed to you in those moments and i was just kind of like this is ruining the film (laughs) like seeing it not be essentially found footage it's like why you this i can imagine this being like something the writers would have just been stuck on but Mm. it it just does not work for the film i thought i was pretty disappointed that that it went there but other than that it's pretty interesting so yeah, well, those, uh, those are my ones. Oh yeah, well, you know, uh, far be it from me to let AJ have the last word. I also want to mention some uh, films that I saw that I didn't talk about because I also saw a bunch. Uh, <laughs> uh, some good comedies this year. Joyride was a lot of fun. Um, Need to see that. Had a lot of heart at the end of it as well. Um, really good. Anatomy of a Fall is one that didn't come up, but I think will probably come up in the Oscar conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, we also polite society was a lot of fun. Um, about oh, yeah. like a, a wannabe stunt woman, and it's kind of like a shot in the same sort of like Scott Pilgrim sort of way, where there's like a lot of fights, and it's clearly heavily inspired by that. Um, uh, Champions was a film as well about like um Woody Harrelson, uh, coaching a um a disabled uh basketball team, and it's just like aren't movies better than this now? Like that, that was my review of it was just that it's like, it's just such like a safe kind of all right comedy that you could see from like 1998. And it's like, I thought we had passed this. I thought movies were better than this now. Um, so I think, yeah, Boogeyman, I think I mentioned at one point, but um, the boys in the boat is a real funny one that like came out. Um, just at the end of the year it was like george clooney's like oscar sort of like it's about the the team that the mirror the u.s team that went to the olympics during world war ii and um it's just so fun like i've seen so many memes of it now that it's like you know the meme of like guy holding up like the vial like eureka i found it and it's like george clooney when he finds the most forgettable script he's ever laid hands 
on. <laughs> that it's like George Clooney just like makes his directorial efforts are just like eh. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh yeah, I think that's uh oh but one film I can't believe didn't come up that like one of the weirdest films of the year, uh The Pope's Exorcist. I completely <laughs> forgot this came out this that year. That came out last year. Yeah. Holy shit. Um insane film it, it, it like um it's it can't decide what its tone wants to be like you what there's trailers of this where it's edited and it's like oh this is a comedy but it's like those are the only moments of levity in the film but then the film and it's like i saw a tweet that was like um it was like the Pope's exorcist. You have to come with me. There's like, you know, exorcists that need to be done, blah, 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 blah. Um, like a parody of like a sequel tease. And all the replies are like, that's actually what happens at the end of the film. <laughs> and that like the film ends with, it's like you've excised either one or two of the demons of 200. Don't worry. We have like found where the rest of them are. And then he hops on his little Vespa and <laughs> drives away to like excise the hundred, another 198 mm. demons or whatever. It's so weird. It's such a weird film. Um, and with that, we wrap up the year. Every film we saw in 2023. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, let us know what you're most disappointing, your favorite, your least favorite, your, you know, what did you watch in 2023, I guess. I'm genuinely interested to, if there's anything I've missed that you think I specifically would like. I hope people have a good enough idea of my taste. Please recommend it and do the same for Richard and Jeremy if they want, I guess. I'm not their mums. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the post credit scene after this music ends. And stay tuned because next week we're going to be doing... Uh, every film we will watch in 2024. <laughs> um, so get excited for that. I'm sure it will be just as long and tedious uh, as this one, even though we haven't seen any of the films we'll be discussing. And <laughs> <Which> <laughs> an, I never understand how that works. I never understand how we can talk so long about movies we haven't seen. But that is. Well, I mean, just go to like, you know, AJ's segment on The Flash and you'll get the answer. That's true. That's true. Maybe I'll watch The Flash by next week. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for listening, everybody. Stay tuned for the post credit scene and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Welcome along to the post credit scene. This is a segment at the end of each episode. If you donate $5 or more, you get to ask us something or get us to talk about something in this, the post credit scene. Richard and Jeremy are both here. And Richard, can you tell me who it's from and what is it? Yes, so uh, last week I, I put the call out. I said we we're running out of these. And then a couple of people in the Discord are like, I sent one in ages ago and you guys just haven't done it. And so, yeah, it turns out that a shit ton of questions just weren't uh, taken from Patreon to the to the google sheet that i'm reading off um have you scrolled down the google sheet yeah because there's i separated them so that no one is like two weeks in a row basically so oh yeah okay okay you're talking about the like oh there's one like one row further down but no yeah there's there, there was there's like maybe a dozen questions that i just went back through our patreon dms and would never add it to this list. Um, some from like right. a year ago. Um, and so Sorry. I'm gonna gonna have one of them now. Um, uh, so we while uh, someone asked this on the Discord, and I said you have to send it in if you want the answer. Um, to this. Uh, so this is from Jake who said, "What are the appropriate toppings for a meatball sub?" 
Mm. Good question, because I think a meatball sub, to me, the whole point is that it's like an undiluted Yeah, the meatball explosion. is, the, is yeah. the, the main character. And and this is something that I think a lot, like Peter Pit, the, the, I don't know if that's international, but mm. there's a, a Peter place in New Zealand called Peter Pit that like P-I-T-A, treat you're saying yeah yeah that yeah. treat the um the like the chicken or the beef as like just another of the ingredients mm. you want evenly distributed through your pita and it's like no I want I want it mainly to be chicken Caesar I mm. want it you know and they the, it's like one part's chicken Caesar one part's iceberg yeah. lettuce um me personally the only accoutrement I'm willing to allow in a meatball sub outside of meatballs and cheese uh would probably be like spinach leaves I think I've had um sun-dried tomatoes in a meatball sub before yeah. and they were okay but it's still like I wish I was eating a meatball in this mouthful yeah, I. If the question is what's healthier for you, don't eat a meatball sub. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. is my answer there. But, Jeremy, do you yeah. have feelings about this? Um, <laughs> I have exactly the opposite of AJ. Oh. I am so routine. I'm so routine with my subway order that literally I just swap out the meat, and literally I I, I have exactly the same um, sauces and vegetables with a chicken classic, a chicken teriyaki when they have it, oh, wow. a meatball sub. So I just go uh, Italian herb and cheese, meatballs, smoked cheese, and then lettuce, tomato, cucumber, green pepper, and carrot, and then southwest and barbecue sauce, no salt and pepper, thank you, wrap it up. Wow. wow. So I feel, I, I don't really eat Subway and anymore. And that'll be uh, $25, thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I hadn't had Subway in like four years mm. or something, and I went there the other day, and I was just like, holy crap, yeah. this is like the same price as what I used to pay for a footlong yeah. cost of living cross. I had a similar mm. experience, actually. Yeah, I, I had Subway for the first time in December, for the first time in, in years. And yeah, like the, the six-inch of the day is like the price that a footlong used to be when I when I go there. But so I feel so strongly about this and I it like infuriated me. So I used to get Subway a reasonable man. I would I would just I loved the meatball subs. And like when you would get it, I would get um I loved the the garlic one, um the the bread and meatball sub with the smoked cheese toasted and then you would say and then they would say any vegetables on this and I would and I would go no and they would always dig their hand into the lettuce grab the out a handful the grab out a handful of their like of their like it. soggy gross uh, wilted <clears throat> lettuce and they would go any vegetables and I go no and then this has happened on more than one occasion. They would put the lettuce on. They would start putting it on. Or they would hold it above so all these like gross little bits of lettuce would be dripping on. And I would say no. And they go, oh, just lettuce. I go, no, no vegetables, thank you. Because I feel so strongly that like a meatball sub is just a meatball and cheese and some sauce. Like, but then and and everyone would be so confused by the fact that I didn't want any vegetables on this. But the thing is, up until so this is this is I'm talking uh fuck like 13 years ago now that i would be having subway and up until maybe like eight years ago the picture in subway of like they've got the examples of all the different subs the meatball sub 
had no other accoutrement on it. <laughs> and so it was like, I, they would be so confused. I would have these discussions with the people there and they'd be like, oh, are you sure? And they would like, look at me strange. And I could tell they were judging me for not getting lettuce on it because they've already started putting the lettuce on. But it's like, I am getting the display. The picture. I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting it exactly like you're recommending it to me. But they're like, yeah, one time she chucked on it this giant handful of lettuce as I was, as I said, no, thank you. And then she was like, oh, is this all good then? And I was like, why would that be all good? Start again. Like, you've ruined the sandwich. You you disobeyed the one order I gave you. <laughs> you deliberately um, <laughs> disobeyed me. And so, yeah, like, the part of the... I, mean, I also think Subway is just like... One of those things where, like, yeah, it's, it's the healthy option, but it's like, this is no different from... It's not healthy. Don't fool yourself into thinking Subway is healthy. Yeah. I think that that, like that I used to get shit from my friends for not wanting vegetables on my sub either. And the thing is, I just don't really like vegetables in sandwiches. Give it to me as a salad, mm. I'll eat the whole thing. Mm. It's not that I don't want the vegetables, it's that I, I don't like... I don't like the mixing. I don't like mixing it, yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway. Richard, I really I really enjoyed like your description of that automatic kind of like, you know, the person behind the counter just automatically reaching in mm. even as they ask you the question before you've answered because it's just so, they just expect it. Reminded me of the time that I walked up to like a, um, like Shamianar Indian place oh, yeah. in, the, in the mall <laughs> and they were like, what would you like? And as I started to talk, before I said anything, he just plunged the, like the handle of the spoon or the spoon into the butter chicken like the mild <laughs> butter chicken like mm. just on site looked you at got, me being like, yep, you're gonna get a butter chicken <laughs> and i hadn't even said it and i clocked that he had done it and i was like but that is what i want so <laughs> that's the annoying <laughs> thing that like i i love butter chicken and, I, and i've had arguments with people that are like oh it's not curry it doesn't count and it's like okay i can still appreciate it as whatever food you think it is i think it's great but i also love other curries and like I I change up my my mall curry order every now and then, but it's like a butter chicken. The reason it's so popular is because it's so good. Give me a vindaloo, give me a madras, whatever. I can handle all of these. I enjoy I, I enjoy all of these. It's but just I also so creamy just, and sweet. Yeah, it's also like the yeah. perfect like lunchtime um, one as well. But yeah, anyway, that is my very strong feelings about meatball subs from Subway, which I teased a year ago. There you go, Jake. <laughs> 